Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 47 for May 2015. I am your co-host number one, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host number two, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing all right, Quinn. Um, how are things out in Southern California? Oh, warm and sunny as always. Good for mm. retro Brighton. Uh, have you been retro Brighton? Uh, I have not because I'm lucky enough to have a machine that doesn't need it, but uh, I have been very busy with it, so I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And we'll talk about all sorts of interesting things. We have a guy on tonight that we've talked quite a bit about, and I don't know why I'm not just saying his name right now because you can read it in the show notes before you listen. Uh, Jason Scott is here with us. We've talked about him, I think, on almost every single episode of Open Apple, and we were just wondering an email the other day why he hadn't been on the show, and I said, let's have him on the show. So, Jason, say hello. Hello, everyone. How you doing? Oh, listen to you, Mr. Calm and Collected now. <laughs> yeah, now he's like, well, he got all his rant out earlier. Dude, we had like 45 minutes of pre-show where he just, let's, let's tear into Mike's psyche and see what makes him tick. Don't worry, I was recording, so we've got it all for the blooper reel. It all came from love, Mike. I don't think it was anything inaccurate. <laughs> Very long blooper reel, I can tell you. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's radio gold, I'm telling you. So how are you, Jason? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, great. I am spending a lot of time in the retro world right now, and I am spending an awful lot of time doing things for my my employers, the Internet Archive. And um, as people who know all the stuff I've been doing for the Internet Archive uh, are aware, it's mostly time-consuming, boring things punctuated by periods of yelling and screaming on video or otherwise getting stuff online. So it's a pretty good life. Um, my sleep schedule is completely weird now. That's why I have the 100% light blocking curtains. And I've been uh, uh, just recently ripping CDs. I finally decided, you know, I ought to sit back and get all the CDs out of this office. And I think my rough number is it's somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 CDs. So it's going to be something. Well, one of your retro activities lately has been, um, actually, you've been, I don't know if I call you regular yet, but you've been at the past couple of Kansas Fests, and I think you've been there the whole time or almost the whole time, right? Yeah, you know, um, when I first went to Kansas Fest, well, first of all, I'd heard about Kansas Fest earlier than that. And what I love about Kansas Fest when you describe it to people is it's this one-two punch. You go, it's a five-day, well, Apple II conference. Oh. <laughs> like, you just you just tell that to people. That's like, yeah, I'm going to an Apple II conference. They're like, yeah, really? And I'm like, yeah, it goes on for five days. You stay over in the building with people almost 24 hours a day, Apple II stuff. And they look at you, and they're like, oh, okay, is that a thing? And I'm like, it's the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> and what happened was, was that I originally got that one-two punch and knew it existed, but didn't really know much about it. And then what happened was I was asked to be a keynote. And unfortunately, like an idiot, I had some stuff kind of cooking. So I came in, I kind of flew in, did my keynote and basically flew out. I forgot exactly what was happening. It might have been DEF CON. It might have been something else that was going on at the same time. Anyway, it was like it was like showing up to like the warmest, lovingest, homely home of all kinds and seeing how there's cocoa 
and there's games that are going to happen and, and, and everyone's going to hang out and talk about life and it's going to be fantastic. And, oh, you got to go. You got to go because you all big city slicker. You got to get back in town so you can go stare at a screen. And I was like, this is, this is, this is horrible that I've done this. I must come back. <laughs> so ever since then, if I can, I come and I stay for as long as possible. I try to stay for the full event. Like this year, unfortunately, I can only spend a day or two there because I've been invited to a summit at the Library of Congress regarding preservation of software, and I feel I really should make an appearance there. But that's literally it. Like, sometimes people are like, I'm too busy, I can't go, or you don't understand. I find that those are negotiable. But I really think that I'll make more of a difference for the world arguing for vintage software preservation with the Library of Congress this year. But if I had a choice, I would go for the full time every year. It's my favorite place to be every year. How could it not be? Five-day Apple II conference. <laughs> How does a guy like you go from, from um, archive.org and uh, preserve? Okay, so yeah, the preservation stuff makes sense. But that seems to be more sort of a, a modern take on history. Um, how, does, how does someone like you get into the, the old software and the, the old, like somebody sends you a stack of CDs and you just go, ah, I'm going to preserve every single one of these and stick them online. What, what let's, let's, where did Jason Scott start way back, when, <laughs> way back when. All right. So you're trying to figure out, all right. So what you're saying, okay. Origin so, story, super villain origin story, Jason. If you do anything for a long enough time, people assume you're pretty dedicated and that you're an expert and all the other junk, right? Sure. So, so that. That's what people do, right? When I started out, like I started out on BBSs back in, you know, I was born in 1970. And by, you know, 1981, all the way through to like 89, 90, I was on bulletin board systems, even ran one for a while. Then I went to college. That's where I learned about, you know, the Amiga. Uh, I learned about using mainframes and mini computers and the internet and got into that. And then by the time I was in my mid-20s, I went to become a Unix administrator. And so I became kind of aware of, like, running websites and everything. And um, I uh, wanted to put up a website about bulletin board systems because I had obviously spent my teen years there. And I felt like there was nothing online to really give you any indication of what the actual story was. Like, they were a footnote at that point. This is all 1998 era and i put up textfiles.com and that was like you know tens of thousands of things i'd collected this had the effect that a lot of people were like oh my goodness you know about that period oh you should talk about it oh you should know about this and, and even more importantly oh this matters to you here's all of my stuff so um people were sending me additional things to stick into the collections and so on and Somewhere around uh, like 2000, 2001 was when I thought I ought to do a documentary about bulletin boards because no one's going to do one and I've been collecting them now. And that's how I became like the filmmaker slash oral historian. And I was giving some talks about it and I turned out to have some talent with talks. So I became known as a public speaker of historical and nerdy subjects. So that triptych kind of existed for a long time, makes films, runs historical website, gives funny speeches. And by the time I was hired by the Internet Archive, which was in 2011, 
I had long ago been established as like, oh, there's this historian guy. He likes online history. He likes bulletin boards, but he also likes early historical internet stuff. And, and, and so after that, you know, it's just been iterations and iterations of that. And my willingness to travel and, and speak for the uh, introverted and nerdy and speak about computer subjects with all the same passion that we speak about Renaissance paintings or old wars, uh, I end up where I am now. So that's like the rough, rough sketch. So most of our listeners probably know you, of course, for the uh, BBS documentary and Get Lamp, also an excellent documentary. Uh, what else do you have in production these days, documentary-wise? So I'm working on three documentaries right now. One is on the 6502 chip. One is on arcades, the place of arcades. And the third one's on the medium of tape. Uh, right now, arcade is being worked on the hardest with 6502, a... Um, not distant second, but far second, and then tape. I really have to refocus a different way to get a lot more people for that one. But I've got a lot of arcade pretty much shot, and now I'm just finding out where the gaps are as I edit it. So I can't give timelines of when these things are coming out, but, you know, I am I always do these as time permits and working on them and different ideas come to me over time. The one thing I can say about the arcade documentary is the world is not hurting for documentaries about arcades. There's really been at least 12 that I know of that have come out in the last four to five years. So mine's a little weird because it's about the place of arcades. I'm working on like all sorts of modifications to the editing to be weird and so on. It's hard to describe. I feel like I'm going to put it in there. People are going to be like, that was really odd. Or other people are going to be like, oh, man, it was like no other film I've ever seen. And I just, I, I it's just, I, I feel like the world has had enough of people explaining that video games used to be really popular in the arcade. <laughs> and they made, they made a lot of money. And then Nintendo took away all their money. And now they're gone. Like, that story is a little boring. And there's a whole other subgenre of people who do documentaries on, um, like, Street Fighter players and it's like mm -hmm. they play street fighter they are very competitive some of them have families <laughs> some of them earn money then over time some of them question what they're doing they're 24 25 and they are playing video games do they want to do that boom ba -dum, bum bum look who won it's this team yay and i just feel like there, there was a there was a documentary called um ecstasy of order rise of the tetris masters about mm -hmm. playing tetris and i thought that was really like a high-end example of the genre like it really made you understand a lot about video gaming and the thoughts behind it and why people enjoy it and all their thinking and it was just really well done then there's other ones that just aren't as well done and there's some that are absolutely terrible you know i've made three documentaries um, besides bbs and gitlamp there's a third one called defcon and then there's obviously these three more coming and then i would much rather move to producing because I really don't have the time to really sleep in the car for like an 8 a.m. appointment to get into a place before it opens to shoot. You know, all the pain and weirdness and odd hours and distance that's involved in making a good documentary. One that's not just a clip job with a narrator. And I would like to like guide some filmmakers in the future. Uh, I, help, I help them now behind the scenes and I'm in a bunch of documentaries. But I, I also feel like, oh, man, I have some good ideas, but I just can't throw my body 
like I used to. You know, I used to be able to pull like 300, 400 miles a day and do like four interviews and that's not happening. Not anymore. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, your angle on the arcade documentary then. what uh, What's going to set it apart? The, the, the documentary is about the place of arcades. And what I mean about that is I am more fascinated with the unique environment that people have worked to set up with entertainment venues and home arcades and temporary arcades like um, MAGFest and California Extreme and there's a few others like that where they basically rent out a large auditorium, fill it with arcade games, make it dark, put in all sorts of music, and people show up by the hundreds to play. Sometimes people who are you know, barely out of their teens or barely out, barely into their teens. And the fact that we have this visceral need to do that, to be in these dark spaces with these glowing machines, is to me fundamentally fascinating. And the relationship that people build to these machines, why for some people emulators don't do the work, or why playing alone on a uh, console at home, even with voice chat, is not the same. So I'm more about these places. So I've gone to a lot of places and filmed them. And then I've talked to people who either own home arcades or own arcades or who have programmed games for arcades or even people who, um, I have a few coming up. There's a person who I'd like to get. Um, she hasn't said yes yet, only because we haven't chatted directly, who's an expert on the spacing of casinos for maximum extraction of money and to make people feel bonded and you know supplicant to these machines needing to constantly be with them not that she likes it in fact all of, all of her talks about it she just sounds disgusted it's like somebody majored in pig blood like they're just she's just unhappy whenever she talks about it because she talks about pain points and everything else and i think her relationship to this subject would be fascinating but i have Carly, and I am feeling terrible because I don't have her last name here. Could link to her in the uh, in the show notes. I don't want to mispronounce her last name. I think that's worse than I don't remember her last name exactly. But she's like the expert on 1980s arcades. Like she studied them. She's done many papers on them. She 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 teaches them in Chicago. So so there are actually arcade academics, and I try to get a couple of those and. Building this very unusual thing, I think the, I mean, I'm not probably not giving anything away, but I intend to have basically no headshots. Like, I'm really not interested in having anybody's, anybody there. <laughs> like, we see people, we might even see the person who's talking, but they're not talking to the camera. No endless talking heads. Right. Well, I always get, I used to get dinged for talking heads, but in this particular case, I don't want there to be any talking heads. I want there to be this, you know, a real sense of the spaces being more important. And the only movie I've seen, which some people will go, oh, he's getting the idea from this, is uh, a movie called Room 237, which is about conspiracy theories around The Shining. And it's basically footage of The Shining interspersed with all of these recorded audio conspiracy theories about every single frame of the movie and what Kubrick was obviously planning to do. Like how, you know, the construction of hallways was intentionally not realistic and 
how, you know, there's an Indian on a painting and that's an indication that the whole movie is a metaphor for the destruction of the Native Americans and so on. And it's all being done by these disembodied voices. And I like that. And I'm going to do that with the arcades because it's about the machines more than the people and the machines and the people interacting than about somebody standing in front of a glowing screen that's going off and talking to you. I want every frame to be beautiful. Anyway, this is this is where I am sitting now with this movie. Maybe in another two weeks it'll be a comedy musical. <laughs> but for the moment. I think it sounds great. It'll be fun. People will like it or they won't. Um, the 6502 documentary, I've recorded a lot of Apple people with that. I may have missed the boat with Wozniak. Um, I think it's become extremely difficult to just interview Wozniak. I think justifiably his wife has really clamped down on too many interviews because I think she was getting tired of her husband literally not coming home. I mean, even though she was seeing him and stuff, but not coming home for more than a day or two for four months. And to do that, they've kind of had to really clamp down on just random interviews because him being pulled every which way was just killing him. You could tell. So I hope to get him. It'd be nice. I have footage of him with people at Kansas Fest, and I may just leave it at that. But, um, you know, the 6502 documentary, actually, I think I believe I have to interview you as well. Quinn. I think I was on the slate at one you're, point. You're still yeah. on. The, you're still. Oh, you're still on the slate, and don't worry about that. <laughs> but that may be a more standardized documentary. That one's going to be more about programming. You know, I've got people who have programmed all sorts of 6502s. I have some very heartfelt commentary. I already have the tear-filled testimony to the power of the apple. So I've got all the things like that, and so on. And I, you know, so it, it's going to be a very interesting, weird little movie. I've already interviewed the the architect and the designer of the 6502. So those two are in there and hopefully more. Chuck Peddle. Yeah, Mr. Peddle, Mr. Mensch. You know, it's funny because you know, you work on a subject like this. First of all, I try to choose a subject that's obscure enough that 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 justifies me spending part of my life working on it. Like I I don't like being yet another film in a section. And, and so I want to go after something that's really obscure or something that I think is powerful, but that I'm not going to wake up one morning and there's six of them. And with the arcade one, I should have known that was partially going to happen. I own ar arcadedocumentary.com, and I have a buddy who's made his own film. It's at arcademovie.com. And um, there's other arcade movies and so on. But the 6502 one, I think I'm safe for the moment. I'm not too worried. So, yeah. Anyway, documentary filmmaking is one of those weird things because... In all the other things I do, I'm working as hard as I can to get things out as fast as I can. And with documentary filmmaking, it's this multi-multi-multi-year manifestation of work that will result in a piece of art that some people will say, oh, it's too slick, or oh, it's perfect, or oh, I, I, wish, I, I wish I got my life back. As a, as a movie expands out, you'll always get a certain percentage of people who just hate it but they go further than that. It's one thing to say, like, this did nothing for me. I, it leaves me cold. But then you can actually get people who are like, I am mortally insulted that you thought <laughs> this should be how I should spend an hour and a half of my life, my precious life. So the way I always cheer myself up, not that I often need it, 
is to go to a movie I know is perfect, like beautiful and wonderful, like the indie game movie, and then go read the worst reviews. And it's just amazing. I'm like, oh my God, you found a downside in cheesecake. You found a <laughs> downside to a, a, a warm summer's rain and lemonade. Um, there's, there's no saving you. I think that's yeah that's just always going to be true of art in general i mean i'm amazed even just writing a simple blog post on my own blog i, I will get hate mail for it and sure it's just it's amazing to me that someone will take time out of their day to sit down and write hate mail about a blog post about etching your own circuit boards or whatever like it, it's really quite amazing well there's two different kinds of hate mail and believe me i live i mean you're talking to somebody who has had all the all the good stuff all the good harassment all the like 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 descriptions of my house um through to like disagreements about my art style or whatever else and there's two different kinds of people right there's there's a person who is like there's something about what you've done that's bothered them and they are responding to that and you may have different visions of like how much that's a bother and that's fine like they'll be like i see in one of your pictures you're not wearing gloves and I lost a friend to that, or I lost some whatever. It's unhealthy. It makes me scared. It makes things look bad, or whatever. Like that kind of a thing, like where you can like drill down, and maybe they're not very good at expressing themselves, but you can like see the seed of like, oh, that's why that bothers you. Like a good example is trigger discipline. Like take a picture of yourself with a gun with your finger on the trigger, and there's certain people who are like, no, that's. That's dangerous. Oh, yeah. That makes us yeah. look bad. It's, it's you know, you can hear the, they may express it haphazardly and poorly, but you can see the seed of, oh, you're worried literally about gun safety and the poor portrayal of guns. But then there's another set who are literally just randos. They just don't have any stake in the game. They don't have the game. They didn't even know there was a game being played. They're just there to literally cause a mess and if they can use some of the language of where they are to cause even more chaos, they'll do it. And the hard part is trying to separate that first group and that second group, because at some point their lines blur. You know, it's one thing when you have somebody who's just like, I, I believe this about old computers, you know, ah, old computers should go away. And they have some cramped intellectual description for why they should go away and then you have people who are just like like they just just the sound of vomiting that's basically their <laughs> contribution to the whole process and you're like what are you doing and it's because it's nothing to them there's no real like they were sent there by hackaday or they were <laughs> brought into it because it was linked somewhere from a reddit thread and they don't have anything to say about it except for they think this happened and that's an injustice and they're going to get mad at you. Like if you, uh, just as an example, I mean, I know that you have your computer that has an interesting case and somebody decides that's terrible. It's terrible that old cases are used. That's terrible. <laughs> and then they express, and you're like, why, why are you here? What are you doing? <laughs> what part of my life is important to you? Why are you doing this? Are you saving anything? The, the, the response that I love now is when somebody writes like a five paragraph rant, the way to shut them down is to go, who, who hurt you? Who, who did this to you? And just leave it at that. Who, who hurt you? Do you have a personal uh, history with the Apple II, or what? What is it about uh, Kansas Fest that keeps you coming back if you don't? Both of those answers are very long. 
Okay, so I first ran into Apple IIs in uh, about 1981 um, when I was going to school in a um, in a district I hate so much that I won't even mention their name. But they had an Apple II lab lorded over by this idiot. The computers themselves, though, were amazing. And when I ran into people who had programs that could boot, that's where I first saw Choplifter. That's where I saw Star Blazers. You know, that's where I first saw all sorts of interesting programs and I could bring them in and type them. Um, we had all these lectures about how floppy disks worked and I thought they were fascinating. You know, this is all like 1981, 82. And I, uh, there was no way in a million years my family could afford anything like that. You know, my mother was a divorced uh, mother of three. Um, my father bought an IBM because he worked for IBM. Um, but there was really no way to justify get me an Apple of any sort. So I was using the school's apples, and then I started to bump into people who had apples at home, which I thought was miraculous. The apples were always my favorite. Like, I would sometimes work with an Atari 800. I think I got one myself uh, somewhere around when I was 13. Ooh, and I would, of course, um, uh, well, yeah, Atari 800, actually. And then, and then they, um, what do you call it, um, an IBM PC at my father's house, where I would do a lot of my modeming. But the Apple to me was like, you know, the sports car, you know, the, the, the amazing piece of tech that had all these sexy lines that I really enjoyed and these programs that came out so beautifully in their own way uh, with that, you know, just everything about the aesthetic I loved. And so I was a huge fan of the Apple II well throughout my high school years. Ultimately, I think I moved towards an Amiga and a Macintosh when I was in my early 20s and then I moved back over to PC compatibles so I kind of bounced back and forth between all of these but it wasn't until much later that I was owning apples of any sort like I have 12 now mostly because I want to make sure that I have working ones and people send them to me and I use them basically for image transfer of, of floppy disks I mean that's my primary thing that I do with them now so, I mean, I do have a long storied history with them, both as a uh, fan, as a user, eventually as an owner, certainly as a historian, um, somebody who got to hear the first layer of Apple stories. You know, when you have history, you have all these layers, and the first layer is like what everyone knows, right? Like, the stock market fell, or, or the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And then you have the secondary layers, which are like, well, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor because we shut down some of their resources associated with, diff with a different skirmish, and so they felt squeezed, so they decided to retaliate, so it wasn't just a surprise attack. And then you get like, to the third level, where you get like into murky stuff, where it's like, well, you know, FDR was tipped off about the Japanese attack, and so he kind of let it happen to spur America into the war... And so on, you know, like, in other words, like these different, different layers. And so with apples, it's always like, there were these two guys and they made a computer and that computer is now everywhere. And that's like the first layer, right? And then the second <laughs> layer is like, oh, Apple had these amazing deals with schools and they did all these amazing sales tricks and their ads were this way. And then by the time you get to the third level, I mean, that's where everyone's living now in the Apple community where they know things down to like 
there was this salesman and he was able to make this call and Apple showed up to a meeting uh, with jobs where he said this and this to this person, places where there was only like one or two people in the room, but they remembered it. And then they describe it 20 years later as having happened that way. And, and you discover all these weird little, you know, misfit stories that of course would never make it into Newsweek or people. Why would you do that? But that's where you get start to get like a real realistic view of like what exactly was happening because mythology is fun and slick but it doesn't tell you how things happen and it certainly doesn't function as a template for people to learn you can't really hear the apple story as it's described in say newsweek and then set out to emulate it you need to know like what was going on and you know that's when you find out you know apple had all sorts of help at the beginning i mean technically Right. I mean, HP was paying the salary of Wozniak and Jobs had done work for Atari. And, you know, in other words, like they had come through the the environment and bumped into people and, and, and observed things like they've got they got an education in the business. It wasn't they just walked out of college and made a million dollars. There was all these other hands involved. And of course, there was, you know, the, the third founder and, and so on. And and. And I think that's one of those things that I've really discovered coming into history late as a observer and documentary filmmaker is that you start to realize, oh my goodness, it goes all the way down. It never ends. So that's that's been my big lesson. Yeah, real human history is nuanced and messy. And yeah, you're absolutely right. When we, those first layer, the first layer or two is, is always sterilized. And uh, we, you know, we always map it onto sort of our hero uh, templates or, or our biblical templates or what have you. We have these sort of archetypal stories that we just map the history onto. But yes, of course, the yeah. real history is always much more nuanced. Everyone wants that. Everyone wants to think that there was some magical secret and people pressed three buttons and suddenly they became rich. They bought a garage in, in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bought a garage, made a couple of things happen. And then, yeah, and now everyone is, is rich, and that's why. And all you need to do is, you know, hang up your shingle, give yourself a funny name, take a vowel out of your verb that describes what you do, <laughs> and you'll become a billionaire. And then you start to, like, hear these other names, you know. Uh, you start to hear names about, like, oh, and then this Sequoia Capital. And you start to look up the name Sequoia Capital and various members of Sequoia Capital. And that's when you go, oh, oh, these people showed up and took them from 20 employees to 2,000 employees over the course of a few years. And that's why, you know, it wasn't just, oh, they sold so many out the door that they were suddenly worth a billion dollars. I think that's, I think that's just a natural, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's easy. And, and, you know, the great thing about um, Kansas Fest has been that adherence to bringing out people who are not, certainly after their appearance, it's, it's even more a part of the lore because now they've spoken out. But, you know, the fact that Kansas Fest has over the years sought out people like Bob Bishop, who was in risk of kind of having his story, I wouldn't say buried, but just not up there. And, you know, letting him speak for himself and talking about what he's up to and, and, and what he did back then and everything else. You know, that's the kind of important stuff that you want to learn about. You don't want it just to be another, you don't want somebody just walk down to, 
get a copy of what the Newsweek article said or the Time magazine article said, and that's done, or even the Wikipedia article. You want somebody to have a 60-minute or 90-minute recording of somebody who was there in the fab plant talking about, oh, why is this incredible thing set up like this? Oh, yeah, the vendor said that's the only way we're going to make those because that's all we could afford. Like the, the, Roland, the Roland 808 drum machine, part of the reason it has this unique sound was because Roland basically had bought a batch of a few thousand bad transistors. And they used the parts of the transistors that worked to make the sound. And, but the other parts played a part in the sound. And after they ran out of those transistors, they could never make them again, even as they became popular. So there was only a few thousand ever made because they were essentially retreads of a batch of bad transistors. Like, that's interesting. That's an interesting story. And it speaks to a lot of uniqueness as opposed to just, yeah, people used to make music, but then electronics came in and now we're done, which is just not the story. Yeah, and a theme kind of running through what you said there is is that, you know, there's no such thing as the lone genius. Uh, that's sort of a... I think a uniquely American kind of mythos, uh, you know, the successful people are always standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, they're always, they had good educations and they were surrounded by people who could help them and, and so on. And I think, yeah, that message is sort of important to society. I mean, it's why we, you know, we need education and it's why, you know, progressive taxation is a fair thing. And, you know, if, if you lose that sort of perspective on history, then I think a lot of society, how we got to where we are and why it's working, uh, gets lost on people, I think. Yeah, it just encourages a certain mode of behavior. You know, the problem is um, people confuse uh, knocking down the great man theory with some sort of democratization of genius. Like, like your two choices are essentially great man theory or Harrison Bergeron. And those are your, that's it. That's the two choices you're going to get. Either everybody knows that there were these few unique people that have shown light in the darkness, or we're all just automatons crushed down who will never innovate or do anything because nobody is allowed to stick their head higher than six inches over everyone else. And, and, and of course that's just all the kind of crap that people say to get angry. I mean, it, it appeals heavily if I can bring it back for a moment to technologically minded people because technologically minded people want to see the world turned to some extent into a quantifiable entity. It makes life easier. Like one of the things I think motivates a certain realm of vintage computing folks is that it's a world that you can in some ways dominate. You know, the work is done. You're not getting a new surprise every three hours. If you try to follow like advancements in the stock market or advancements in financial technology or certainly advancements in genomics or uh, even drone technology, that's a full-time job and it is involved and you're going to get wrong and there's things you don't know about you're not allowed to know about yet um, so you don't even have all the information. But vintage computing is a very slow-moving target and you can learn all of it. You know, I had, I had a friend who learned Klingon and he was probably still is one of the best Klingon speakers in the world. And there's some comedy associated with that. But what he told me was, you know, I studied French for seven years and I went to France and I might as well have been a child. <laughs> and I learned Klingon. I learned it. I could speak it fluently. I could speak with others fluently and know that I dominated the language. And that felt good. And I love speaking in it because I know nobody else has taken the time to learn that craft. But everyone is learning terrible versions of French. 
And that was his motivation. It was a very honest motivation. It wasn't, this is the, this is the true voice of the Klingons. You know, he was, he was just more like, ah, what an interesting language. And, and it's, it's constructed to be a language nerd's paradise. It utilizes some of the worst aspects of, or one might say the most challenging aspects of languages all over. It's got all sorts of interesting um, prefixes and suffixes and soundings, and, and it uses the same word for three different colors and, and so on, so that you're under all these interesting, you know, there's a suffix to mean the thing I just said is a living entity. The thing I just said is an entity that can make a sound and so on. And so there's a geek aspect that's fascinating. And I think for vintage people, the fact that we can kind of not just know the Apple II's architecture and its structure but we can find like comprehensive top-down every single way aspect of its technology to the point that you can ask the guy who made it why he did that and i think that's a in a world that sometimes takes away a lot of our control or makes us feel powerless or doesn't feel like we can dominate we can dominate that we can understand it that's very astute. I mean, that's a lot of that summarizes what I love about retro computing and the Apple II in particular is that, you know, modern computing is such a, a nebulous morass of, you know, mind bending standards and layers and layer upon layer upon layer of software. And you just you have no control over any of it and things go wrong and there's just no way to diagnose anything. And the Apple II is just the opposite of that. It's just, you know, documented all the way down to the transistors and every question you can have about the machine has basically been answered or close to it and there's people you can talk to to get help uh, and it's just sort of this well-defined playground you can go in there and these are the boundaries and let's see what i can do within this playground and you can have control everything you can understand everything and it's just sort of a comforting environment i guess and the difficulty level of course is that in that environment of true depth of understanding of decades of, of of regard and perspective to produce something new is accepted as a triumph and a masterpiece as opposed to being merely another competing project if you if you look at some of the old stuff from like the, say the mid 80s and people were making different power supplies or different cooling fans or adding a chip to add a certain kind of character set swap in. That was nice, but now if somebody comes along and says, I have changed what kind of colors can come out of the apple, people go, that is interesting. How are you doing it? Well, I had to just, well, I kind of had to. And what the best ones to me are always where the person mentions as an aside, a thing they did that in itself is a miracle. Like, those are my favorite hacks. The ones are where, where someone says, well, okay, so first I measured the flow of all the electricity going in and out of all the chips because I knew I was going to misbalance that and I was going to add this. So so first I mapped that. Nobody ever had that map, so I spent summer and mapped every <laughs> chip's uh, specific voltage pull. And so here's a, here's a chart, which most people would kill for because it's amazing. Oh, here's a heat map showing you like how the voltage pulls travel among an apple. But anyway, now that I did that, here's the thing I did that I'm really proud of. And then they described this thing. <laughs> they were like, oh my God. Oh my God. That to me is like kind of the joy of this whole arena. When I see one of those go by, I'm always like, oh my God. It's starting to burn out now on things like I added an SD or CF card to it. Like, we're sort of there now where you're like, oh, I get it. Everyone can do this to almost everything. You can add an SD card to a microphone. You know, okay, I got it. You can do that. 
But when somebody comes along and says like, okay, now my Apple II is the conduit for this thing. And so it controls this other machine and does this thing. And then everything it like, imagine like if in a, like off the top of my head, like say an Apple II, the person made this interesting communication thing for one of its cards that let it go off and use remote cloud processing and just had something in there that kind of hit like an Amazon service and set up an instance and then started utilizing it and then doing all these amazing graphics because it's just blitting in and out from the processor it's taken over in the cloud. People would be like, that's crazy. And then the person, and they'd be impressed. And then if the person said, yeah, and to do it, I had to kind of come up with this interesting communications protocol for doing real-time video through an internet connection hooked up to my Apple. People were like, I want a copy of that. That would be interesting. And so on. That's the joy. And while not every year, many years at Kansas Fest, there's that I baked my secret apple pie for the county fair feeling when somebody gets up. Like Mark Pilgrim's demonstration of having an Apple II program that knows what emulator it's in. <laughs> to do that, first he had to diagnose where an emulator guesses and makes up a number because nobody would care. What would it matter if the buffering between sectors was this amount? Because who cares? Nothing's reading that. That's just a wait time. But by observing that quantum effect, you know the behavior and you know you are inside of an emulator, which is an almost philosophical problem. <laughs> are we in an emulator? Like there's a series of of observations that we are doing like scientifically now that it's believed that if these readings go this way or that way, we're in a simulation or not. It's basically like watch this. And if at this behavior, this starts to show itself, it means that they can't process at that level. And so it's probably being guessed at. And so it's probably a simulation. <laughs> it's a very, yeah. you know, it, that, it touches on that. A, a simple Apple II demonstration touched on this fundamental questioning of the nature of existence that's a powerful thing to provide as a demo at your apple II five-day conference yeah and uh perhaps a little less philosophically but i think what i found really interesting about these sorts of technical stunts is that as the apple II lifespan has gone on there's this been this sort of crossfade where in the in the early days people were mostly doing what the machine was intended for and sort of the next obvious thing and everything they did made millions of dollars. You know, you put fewer the first 10 people to put out a game on the Apple II, you could pay your mortgage with it. And nowadays the technical achievements are just light years ahead of where they were and nobody will pay you a penny for them because they're worthless. <laughs> so I just think that's really interesting how, you know, people are doing things today with an Apple II. If in, in 1982, the exact same thing could have been done, but if someone had done so, it would have been just this amazing revolutionary million dollar idea and now it's this thing that people pass around on Facebook and go, oh, neat, an Apple II can do that, huh? Well, it's literally the application of the first-to-market theory, <laughs> which, you know, first-to-market, if you can't be best, be first. If you can't be first, be best. And then there's, like, first and best. <laughs> first and best was 25 years ago, and now there's <laughs> you. Um the problem becomes that your market has dwindled so much. Like the CFFAs have sold reasonably well, 
for what they are in the market they are. It's just the market's gone. By anyone's nature, the market is gone. The amount of work required to create a product that will be consumed by the Apple community is now completely insane. Like, you wouldn't do it. The only way you could do something with that would be an Apple II software project that functionally interacted with you in a pure software phase. Because then, theoretically, right? I mean, like, um, Mr. Brock. Dagan. Dagan. I got, a, I got a buddy I deal with a lot named Dragan Eppenscheid, and he does a whole bunch of history of GeoCities. So he's my other retro D-gen guy. Anyway, Dagan made that beautiful 6502 Hint app, which I like. I have it. I don't know enough to use it, but it's there. And I was like, this is a wonderful thing, and I hope he got a few bucks for it. But it's hard to justify the time now. It's just so hard. So, you know, what would, what would you do? Yeah, and that's kind of what makes Kansas Fest fun, is that there's been this sort of 25-year filtering process of the fan base and so now since you know anything new that you want to try and do is just going to be an incredible amount of work because all the easy stuff was done 20 years ago and now there's absolutely no chance of making any money on it so the only people that are still here are the ones who are just so passionate about it that they're willing to do crazy things for free just so that they can share that accomplishment with the other 50 people who will care once a year and i think that's awesome no it's the strength of it that community that I, and again, bearing in mind there's multiple Apple II communities, but this pr primarily functional Kansas Fest-centered one, what really struck me, and I think I had a couple people come in, I mean, you know, I've had people come in who joined up who were just blown away by it, is, is like functionally, A, there's a strong honesty that really pervades it, and there's a really strong sense of non-judgmentalism. And if you are a little odd, or you come up with an idea that doesn't quite fly, or you propose something that's not the way things are going to go, you're not subject to some sort of bizarre ridiculing or put down. It's just simply, well, let's try this instead. And if you have a triumph, people share the triumph and appreciate the triumph. And if you have a idea, people will talk about it with you and give it the weight it deserves if it's embryonic and say, well, this is what may grow it in this direction, or maybe you need this, or maybe this is the part that's holding you back and you should think about it this way instead. And the same thing with like, you know, the people trading equipment where it's just like, okay, look, here, here's some equipment that other people aren't going to use and we don't want to spend the next six months on eBay and you just need this part to get something done. So please take it and continue to do good work with it. And all of that, you know, is is very strong and honest. And I always worry it won't scale. And I always worry it won't last. And I always worry about everything else. But that's what happens with families and emotionally strong spaces anyway. You always have that in the back of your head of like, all it takes is just one dramatic whatever one misstatement or one whatever but that that only matters because it, it matters to you you only get worried about things you don't sit around in like the triple a gaming world and be like oh man you won't believe what ea said about um bethesda oh man that's terrible like you won't care you'll be like oh that's a shame those products aren't coming out anymore or, oh, they use this method instead of the method I thought they would do. But you're not broken 
by it. You're not emotionally worried about it. And I'm emotionally connected to Kansas Fest because of the people. To be honest, if that set of people <laughs> cared about Beanie Babies, Lava Lamps, the game <laughs> Simon, telephone technology, or like uh, rustic recreations of Civil War battles, I think I would still feel the same connection because their their take on things is so real and honest. So part of it's just like that way with the people. I really can't compliment it enough. And that, so anyway, we just get back to like, why does Jason like to come there and spend five days no matter what? And that's it. That's the reason why. In fact, I looked into like, how hard would it be for me to take a plane, go there for the first two days, which is all I can do, go to this Library of Congress thing, and then come back on like Saturday. And I was like, okay, I'm low on money this year. I just can't do that. I cannot go boing, 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 and think I'm doing anything for anybody. But I wanted to. <laughs> if it was like closer to, I mean, not that I'd want it to be, but like if it was closer to New York or to Washington, D.C., and I thought I could do that, sneak off and then come back at night, <laughs> I would have done it. But uh, my jet's in the shop, and that's not going to happen. Yeah, and mine too. That's, that's rough. In, in 2000, I think it was 2007, it was when you were at Kansas Fest, actually, as the, uh, as the keynote speaker. I was elected to take you back to KCI, uh, MCI, the, the airport at 530 in the morning, which was a lot of fun. Yay, me. Yeah, good times, uh, good times. But, but, well, I do remember that we did stop for, for pancakes, and we had, a, you had a great talk that was actually, uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and one of the things that you told me was kind of maybe the, a little bit of what went on behind the whole Infocom hard drive. Are you able or willing to talk about that? <laughs> would that be of relevance to the Open Apple podcast? I think I it, it would. I think people would love to hear that story. Oh, man, that's crazy juiciness. Um, sure. All right, fine. Um, here's what happened. Uh, I was working on GitLab, and I had some relative amount of fame, or I should say at least publicity, around the historical communities and everything else. And, and I work on these movies for a number of years. And out of nowhere, I mean, people would come to me and say, well, you know, you do know about, I mean, you know, when you choose to do a subject that people care about, they come to you saying, well, you do know about blank, right? And, and of course you've heard it a thousand times now. Like, oh, do you know about the rock, the magical rock? You're like, yes, yes. I have pictures of the rock. I've been to the rock. I interviewed the guy who was there at the rock. I was there who interviewed the guy who has the picture of the rock you all use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know about the rock. But you just kind of let it go. Like, that's just going to happen because people care about it. And they're like, you don't want the story of the Beatles unless you tell the story of the Cavern Nightclub. Uh. And that's fine. But every once in a while, something comes in where it's just a little different. And um, somebody contacted me and said, hey, would you like the Infocom drive? And I was like, I answered as you should, which was, of course, of course, I would love the Infocom drive. What is that? And he said, well, um, Infocom had a hard drive that was inside of a server that they were utilizing in Cambridge. And when they uh, moved to California, uh, this was like basically, you know, a small handful of people went west. It was basically murdered the company as most people would consider it. When it moved, there was a server that was sent along, and they destroyed the server. But before they destroyed it, I took a copy. And so I have a 143 meg image of the hard drive. Would you like it? And I said, sure, I would like it. And so I got the drive, and by that, of course, I mean I got a large TAR file. And on it were 
um, well, essentially was like everything, or I should say, I mean, I'm not pausing for some consideration. I mean, literally, I was trying to remember what was in it. There were a couple things that would be nice to have um, that were not in it, you know, just certain compilers and certain tools that had been told of, but it, a lot of stuff was there, including all the original source code for in, in Zill of all of the Infocom games. So basically it was the original source code of these games, not the rehashed ones that had come from reverse engineering. Um, it had a whole bunch of mail. It had a whole bunch of internal company documents, documentation. It had uh, memos. It had um, a few other pieces. Mm -hmm. It had in-process games, like obvious pieces of games that were going to come out, like a, a restaurant at the end of the universe game, um, a couple other preliminary games. And anyway, so I had all that. All right. So it was given to me and I was like, oh man, this was a very unique find. I shouldn't keep the only copy. And I have no idea what this guy's story is, so I don't know who he's given it to, but man. And I was worried about losing it because it was so unique. So I gave it to a friend in New Zealand. I gave it to the Infocom, not the Infocom, the Interactive Fiction Archive with an understanding that it was to be held for a long time, um, that it would be referenced and, and whatever, but it would be strictly controlled. It wouldn't be downloadable. And I gave it to a friend in California, um, Andy uh, Bayo, Waxy. So the guy in New Zealand, he's never done anything with it. He's kind of just kept it close to his heart. The interactive fiction people used it as a reference document. They were able to find intermediate versions of certain games. You know, like, like, cause when you do things in, in Infocom, you would give it a version, a revision, and they were able to go through and find additional revisions that turned out to exist and other certain information that needed to be verified. In other words, they used it as it should have been used as an academic research and a way to verify certain things about the company. It was, it was very nice. In fact, I was very happy about this. They, they, they indicated unfinished games that hadn't been done, designs that had never come out and so on. Um, you know, just in a general sense, just to say unfinished, unfinished, and so on. So that was all good. Um, but my third friend was fascinated that there were these items there. And he fancied himself quite the journalist. And so he decided to write a story about the making of the restaurant at the end of the universe game. And to do this, uh, he utilized private emails. He took pieces of the code and made it playable. And he basically utilized this material to get a scoop, per, per se. Fancied himself a journalist. But that said, he didn't do what a journalist would do, which is use those mail spools as background, and then call the people and talk to them about it and say, hey, I read this thing. Do you have any thoughts on this? Whatever else. He just put stuff out there that people had written privately in 1987, uh, like it was no big thing. I mean, these are all people who are still alive. Nobody was dead. None, none, none of the relevant figures were dead in, in, in the creation of restaurant. Uh, Adams had nothing to do with it. And it was just, you know, it was just a huge, massive amount of privacy invasion in the guise of journalism about something that had no 
living relevance, right? It wasn't like um, somebody had come out and said, we never did this. And then someone said, well, you know, that's interesting because we've gotten our hands on this and here's a small sample just to prove it exists. Do you have a comment now, sir? Ha ha ha. It was just somebody digging up old fights for the purposes of getting a scoop for nothing for his blog. And he contacted me about it. And uh, I was very, I, I was, hes I was I, when he told me he was going to do it, I was hesitant. And when I called him, he had left a message saying he wanted me to look at it before he sent it out. And when I called him, I'd gotten off a plane. He said basically, yeah, I've already pushed it out. You know, you took too long. And then a huge can of worms went. I had some very angry Infocom people at me because they all knew I had it. Uh, this one poor guy, I won't even give his name here, um, who's mentioned in the thing negatively as being like an interloper and the others thinking that he's an incompetent boob when in fact he was just somebody who had been dropped on the project. He had his life turned upside down randomly as people were yelling at him. And then other people were like, what? What is our private? Thank God I didn't say anything worse about this guy uh, on, on the spool or it would have showed up. You know, imagine just, just something you said when you were 23, literally something like 20 years ago, just showing up and everybody is still alive and everybody is watching. It was just a horrible betrayal of trust. And so I stopped talking to him. I think I said some terrible things to him, as I recall demanded he delete his copy and then stopped talking to him for seven years. And we finally made up in 2014. A very tearful, on his side, apology. Just the regret and the sadness of all those years lost of friendship. But I really let him have it in person about it. And what was important to me, the way, the way that he handled that while I yelled at him nonstop for 12 minutes into his face was never once did he try to make an excuse. Like he realized he had just made a terrible ethical error and stepped back from it. So we're friends again and we have not had any altercations since then. Now pulling that back, cause now you're both slack jawed with horror. Um, there was a period where, what, which was interesting to me, which was a guy shows up, another guy showed up after that article was published and he's like where did you get that because i'm the one that's from and i was like mm -hmm. and what had happened was was this guy had been the one who had copied the drive and he had kept the copy in a safety deposit box for like 10 years and then he realized he could have a heart attack and die, and nobody would know this existed. So he gave a copy to three friends, and then a year later, I have it. <laughs> and he was trying to figure out which one of his friends had betrayed him, but it wasn't any of his friends. He had forgotten that he had had a young intern helping him do the copy, <laughs> like helping get the SCSI drive hooked up this thing to that thing. He had forgotten about that kid, and that kid had quietly made a copy, and that was the person who came to me. <laughs> so... He was less bothered by it. I mean, he was bothered that it had happened, that this leak had happened. Uh, he goes, but I know where you're coming from because I did the same thing. I gave it to people who I was worried about. He was just more like, 
oh my God, I totally forgot there was another guy there. Anyway, it was this amazing, you know, I mean, I've been given lots and lots of things, you know, source code to stuff that's not supposed to have ever existed and all sorts of goodies and materials that I would classify as hot potatoes and things like that. And that's just natural progression of things. Someone says, you know, I've got this thing. I'm only going to get in trouble if I ever send it out there because I signed papers and everything. But if you've got it, you're the archive guy. You're a librarian. You can do it. So what I'll do is I'll often stick it up on the Internet Archive without any fanfare, you know, because I normally do fanfare. So no fanfare. It'll just say, hmm, source code to this <laughs> and no other description. And it's the source code to that. And then maybe someone will find it and be like, holy, holy to there's source code to this thing or other things like that. Well, but I really think that I really truly believe that um, putting private email anywhere like that, like really, even for me, really crossed a line. You know, if you read all the mail and I did, there's some intimations of an affair, an interoffice affair, there, you know, there's medical family discussions. You know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things in there that are like, this does not, this does not need to be part of our generation or the next generation. People can be dead and then we can discuss it. But this is not the latest, hottest thing to drop on the world. This is this is just terrible to have uh, in, the, in the contemporary space. So, you know, that's one of those things you just kind of run into, right? That's part of why, like, we'll never get truly the full story, I think, of, like, what happened at id that finally drove out John Romero, even though he's been very forthcoming. Um, I think that there's never going to be, like, the full story of, like, the real relationship between Jobs and Wozniak. I don't think they'll really ever get to that point, you know. There's always going to be some space that's private to people that maybe they're like, ah, the world doesn't need this. And and that's that's just, you know, it's not all fun and games and wearing a hat and getting up on stage <laughs> and talking about crazy crap and and everything else. And you, Mike, you asked about this. Here you are. <laughs> this is what's under the rock of history. <laughs> Stuff's crawling, man. But that's the way it is. That's always going to be the way it is because human beings are involved and human beings are messy little bags of, of, of water and they tend to do strange things and they can talk themselves into some real dark decisions because they want something so bad and they make those choices. And then they have an immediate healing mechanism that enables them to feel that somehow they were in the right <laughs> and that there were justifiable reasons for their unjustifiable acts. Like that's just the nature of humanity. And if you dig far enough, you hit those and, and then you're, you're there. Uh, great. Great. You know, newsflash, people are flawed. I saw a quote recently, which was great, which was instead of finding flaws in legendary people and saying, Oh my God, this legendary person is flawed. Maybe it's better to say, oh, my God, this flawed person did something legendary. And so that's kind of where we sit now. Well, that was a hell of a question, Mike. Yeah, good job, Mike. You, you know, light and fluffy. You know, this is why they call you the, this is why they call you the Katie Couric of, of Apple Broadcast. Just, just your light, your light, fluffy questions oh. that don't have any whatever. It's just all about the weather. And do you like the apple beige? Is that your favorite color? <laughs> Do you like the rainbow logo or the or the solid logo? Which one really, you know, which one do you think is the best for summer? You know, it's all those questions. I'm changing the name of this podcast to Dark Decisions. Dark Apple. <laughs> Dark Decisions. Dark, Dark Apple. Apple. Yes. All right. Well, now that everybody's depressed, Jason, do you want to hang out and uh, talk news with us? 
<laughs> hey, everybody. People have just pulled over in their cars and they're crying on that. the highway. Guys are looking out the window at their children playing, trying to find meaning in life. Why, why did we have him on the show again? <laughs> this, was, this was your idea. I, I'm regretting it. <laughs> oh, open regret podcast. Yeah. Open no regret. kidding. Uh, open Apple now with regret. But look, here, here's the deal. Here's the deal, right? If you want to, okay, so 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 for the people who are like, like, oh my God, is there any, here's the thing. So, so yeah, I mean, like any other vocation, it's not all jelly beans and whipped cream, but there are so many moments in history and historical research that are just glorious and really make you feel honored to be a part of. People like John Romero or... Tom Jennings of Fidonet fame, even Steve Wozniak, who seems to recognize me on site, which I appreciate, when they're so generous with their time, or when they turn around and say, you'll understand this, and they'll tell me something new, or when people hand me materials, you know, some of them have landmines, but so many don't. So many are like, 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 for instance, um, speaking of Apple, somebody contacted me today going, hey, I heard you're collecting BIOS stuff. And I said, yeah, among other things, I'm collecting BIOS stuff. Somebody gave me a small archive. And this guy said, well, I have 15 gigabytes of BIOS stuff. Would you like it? And I'm like, yes. My answer is yes. I would love it. And so he's just sending me everything he's got associated with BIOS. And then I will ensure that it's ensconced in all sorts of archives and all that stuff. And it'll be all sorts of interesting materials so that we understand what part BIOS played in the story of Apple and, and in, in computer innovation and everything else, simply by existing and being somebody who talks about it. And being gifted like that makes up for so many things in life. I mean, being able to be given huge archives where a person's like, there's no place for this. And I'm like, there's a place for it. Um, just today, I was alerted that the Dennis Ritchie homepage had gone away. I made some stink about it. And next thing I know, I'm talking to some people who are archivists at Bell Labs or the the antecedent of, of Bell Labs. And they said, basically, hey, we really want to work with the archive to save a whole bunch of stuff, including Dennis Ritchie's homepage. So will you help us? And I'm like, of course, I'll help you. They're like, great, we have all this stuff. We don't know where we're going to host it. So we're going to get his webpage back up and we're going to give you all this history if that works for you. And I'm like, it works for me. Let me know what I got to do. So there's a case where... Just something that should have been like this annoyance, this sadness, this whatever else, turned into like, oh my god, I'm going to help bring onto the world a whole bunch of interesting technical stuff and historical stuff that otherwise people didn't feel they had a room for. So there's always an upside as well as a downside. And there's, there's always going to be happiness along with the sadness. Like we discussed to wrap it up, to bring it up to the beginning of what we when we started this thing, you can't expect that lower level to disappear there's this whole first level second level third level thing we were talking about and the thing about the first level is it almost always tends to be happy and it always tends to be positive and it always portrays this unrealistic aspect of human beings and what you realize as you go down to the other levels is that yeah people are flawed but that makes the things that are amazing and cool and interesting that people kept at the first level of history that much more impressive when you realize, 
oh my goodness, this person made this incredible piece of work while they were suffering from a, a great depression. I mean, Irving Berlin, who did all this music, suffered from dreadfully painful migraines, which ultimately killed him, uh, to the point that he would like rest in his bed with like pillows and things pressing against his head to stop the pain. And while he was experiencing one of his last painful migraines, that's when he wrote, they can't take that away from me, which is this beautiful, beautiful song. And is it sad to think he was in great pain when he wrote that song? Or is it amazing to think that that song was written by somebody truly in pain who could have given up? So that's where I think we stand with history. I think that's much more important to think of it that way. How's that for a wrap up? That's very yeah, nice. some weight for you. Taking Mike to school. <laughs> <sighs> I want your sigh as my ringtone. <laughs> I want a whole bunch of things that when somebody calls, I want it to just go, huh. <laughs> that, that's how I know, like, oh, who's calling now? <laughs> All right. Well, well, on that upbeat note, why don't we roll into the news, Mike? Sure. Let's talk some news. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II news. So, so I, I stumbled across this blog a little while ago. I hadn't seen it before. It's called the Nightfall Crew. And they do, I don't know if it's they or just one guy. Uh, I think he's Italian. They do a lot of um, computer restorations and, and stuff like that. It's not just Apple. Uh, there's, they've got a section for you know, Commodore Pets and Atari and all that stuff. And, and I, I noticed they had a, an entry uh, marked the CBM PRG Studio 3.2.2 released. And, and what this is, it's a nice all-in-one cross-compiler with a GUI front end if you're into that sort of thing. And I just wonder why we don't have something like this for the Apple II. Yeah, you know, to, yeah, credit where it's due. The, uh, the Commodore folks, especially the scene programmers, have a lot of uh, really cool stuff that Apple users would be, uh, would love to have. Yeah, you know, part of it, Part of it is that like there was this very very strong aspect of the demo scene where people have done a whole bunch of interesting projects and work and one of the things that they encounter after a while is it's better to develop on an external machine and then pull it in and that's led to a whole set of tools and libraries and pieces of work in the commodore sphere to be able to continue to develop that much on it because even though it's dwindled relatively in the last 10 years, you still see people putting out code. And one of the ways that they impress people is first they put out this amazing graphical sound demo, and then they'll release the tool or the library that let them do it. So that's part of what you'll see, like kind of a sparkling attempt. Like um, Apple's always been a little bit behind in terms of demos per se. Like there's some will come out, but they're very small. So the group keeps their tools around. Whereas in the Commodore, you'll see something like, oh, here's a way to write code on your desktop and then push it to the original Commodore and watch it execute in real time. I mean, I think that's really what's going on there. I, I, I think if we had more people working on the Apple and turning it into a demo machine or a machine that had a lot of development on it, we'd see these tools pop up again. I just think we just didn't get there. Yeah, the tools are definitely coming uh, coming around on Apple too. I mean, uh, I think that's this one of my favorite parts of of the community is we've got uh, 
lots of cool efforts with uh, with cross compiling and and uh, integration with modern IDEs and so on. And uh, yeah, it's such a it's such a huge win for efficiency. You know, as as we get older, we have so much less free time, so it's really nice to be able to develop things so much quicker. Uh, Virtual two, of course, is uh, also really great in that regard with all of its powerful tools. Uh, speaking of powerful tools, looks like ADT Pro has been updated. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, this is just a minor bug fix for an RS-232 problem. So if you were using the old serial cable method uh, to transfer files or transfer disk images via, via ADT Pro, you'll want to go and grab the latest build. It's uh, 2.0.1. Any ADT Pro news is good news. And uh, speaking of, well, I guess this is just news. Uh, something, something, another Jobs movie, something, something. Eh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't care. <laughs> Is this is this the one that's on Netflix or is it another one? No, this is uh this is in in shooting I guess right now or, or pre production. It's called Steve Jobs Man in the Machine and I, I, I just can't get myself to care about this. Hooray. I, I will say, however, that uh the article that, that we're gonna link to here in the show notes is the most breathless piece of prose <laughs> I have ever seen written about Stephen Jobs. Uh, it is. It's like a train wreck. I can't stop reading this thing. Uh, so it's it's worth linking to just for that. I actually finally saw. I saw the one with Ashton Kutcher, but I watched it with the sound off, and it's really <laughs> great with the sound off. Um, like the the set design is beautiful. The lighting is beautiful. Um, I have no idea how historically accurate things specifically are. But it was very calming and wondrous to see kind of an office portrayed as like kind of a, you know, kind of a kabuki style of kind of silent portrayal of <laughs> early Apple. I thought that was pleasant enough. I I also agree that like Josh Gad was a silly casting for, for Wozniak. But, you know, on the other hand, there's just this really nice sense of like, wow, that really looks nice. You know, like that looks pleasant. So, yeah, with the sound off, give it an eight. <laughs> if you turn the sound on, it may drop. And when you see these portrayals in movies of historical events, you know, you always have different layers of, like, how well are they going to portray it? Like, are they going to focus on making it look as good as possible? Or are they going to, you know, try to be in actual physical locations that the event being talked about is or anything like that? And then sometimes you're like, this is, this is just a ride. This has nothing to do with anything. This is just, this might as well be, you know, the story of like, this might as well be like the never ending story or the Matrix for all it has to do with technology. It's just some show. And those are kind of fun, kind of a reimagining of the world. We'll get those in another few years, I guess, of jobs. He obviously has somehow, he died at just the perfect time to leave this weird mythological idea that he was just getting started. I think that's just what we are going to live with, is he was just going to do the next thing, and he yeah, died he before went, he went could out do on a high it. note. And we're all poorer for it, and we're never going to get better <laughs> stuff again, and all the people who he worked with, the thousands of people involved... They just they just slumped over like you pulled the CPU out of a hive mind. They all just fell over on their desks. Down they go. No other ideas. It's over. And I just, just, you know. There's just a big jobs-shaped socket in the middle of Apple now that's empty. Exactly. It's exactly like V'ger. It's just 
it's it's just gone and and that mythos is going to drive just a variety of these films and things going forward i mean i just think that's we you know we got to live with it we got to live with that weird screwed up myth for the next 20 years because it's a it's a deep deep well and they're going to keep going back on it well and apparently Jobs's office in in, um, in Cupertino has been left untouched since he died, and uh, Tim Cook goes in there every now and then when he, to contemplate when he needs inspiration. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's a uh, you know whatever works for you. You know what? You're in charge of one of the largest companies by most measures in the world, and if it was emotionally, I mean, a big deal. I mean, you know, he because he knew right. He knew for years. Then okay, whatever. You, if that's your area of solitude, that works out. I am sure that there's plenty of companies where the CEO had a company cabin, and then the CEO died, the founder died, and then other uses for the cabin happen, and people go out there and they're like, yeah, you know, Jay Pierpont himself used to stand here and fish, <laughs> and it feels. And if if that's what if that's your stress reliever, good on good on you. If that's all you need to do is to sit in an office for a couple minutes and go like, oh, what, what would you have done? Or even just, what am I thinking of here? What was I thinking of when I was a part of this? So that, you know, I'll, I'll give him that. The, the one where he offered his liver, I believe was one of the other things that came out recently. Liver or like pancreas, he, something like that. Liver, pancreas, you know, like literally like, Hey boss, would you like a part of me? That guy is going to be an interesting study. I hope it's more. I hope it's it's more reasoned and and less breathless. But Tim Cook's an interesting guy. He's an interesting fellow. He's not just some mere shadow of the previous guy. You know, he's 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 got his own stuff going on. I I, I kind of like him. Well, uh, and Mike, is there a new book here coming out as well that I see? <laughs> yeah, we just can't get away from Jobs. Apparently, there's a, a new a new book that's called. It's already it just came out a little while ago. It's called Becoming Steve Jobs. And it was written, it seems like it was written with the consent of Apple, participated in this one where they did not participate with the Isaacson book and was written specifically to refute what was written, what Walt wrote. So, and it seems kind of vindictive and nasty and childish. Now, it, it is probably important to note that while they did interview a lot of Apple insiders for this book, uh, not everyone agrees with this book or with what's in Walt Isaacson's book. So, um, and the truth probably lies, as is always the case, somewhere in between all of this. But Andy Hertzfeld, I guess, read the final copy and didn't like it very much. And he posted on Medium.com. There's kind of a rebuttal. And the author of the book read this, and he posted his rebuttal to Andy's rebuttal in the back channel. So very interesting reading there. And certainly Jobs may have died a few years ago, but his story clearly is not finished yet. Yeah, it sounds like uh, quite a good read. Um, well, I don't know, good is the word, but <laughs> interesting, certainly. <laughs> yeah, let's say interesting. How about that? I skimmed through a few uh, sample paragraphs, and at least the, the writing itself is, is good. So, you know, if, whether you agree with him or not, you're not going to be stumbling over spelling errors and, and gra grammatical problems and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting how when and whenever there's a, sort of a historical revisitation of events, how... There's always going to be one side that's super positive and upbeat and has this version of it. And then there's always going to be sort of backlash to that where there's going to be people who have a completely negative opposite story and they go out of their way to try to debunk or whatever the other version. And then the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, maybe. 
And if you read any sort of neurology type stuff, you know that human memory is absolutely terrible and is more influenced by how we want things to be than what actually happened. So uh, <laughs> I, I mean, there's probably never going to be any uh, real truth to be had in a lot of these situations. Indeed. All right. Well, why don't we uh, shift gears here a little bit and uh, talk some technological types of stuff. Uh, I'm super excited that we finally get an excuse actually to talk about Steve Chamberlain's uh, Big Mess of Wires. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his, uh, his site and his work. For anyone who isn't familiar, uh, Big Mess of Wires is so named uh, because, I mean, it's a site where he's got lots of cool technology types of things, retro computing and so on. But uh, the name comes from uh, one of his, sort of the project that I guess he sort of got internet famous for, which is a wire-wrapped uh, CPU that he designed and built from scratch. And so it's literally a big mess of wires, and it's really fantastic. He built it uh, from basically nothing all the way up to a web server. So there, I don't know if he still runs it, but for a while he was actually running a web server that was served off of his hand wire-wrapped CPU. It's just fantastic. So, you know, he took what I was trying to do with Veronica, which is sort of build up a computer from nothing, but he just, yeah, he outdid me by considerable uh, amount. So hats off to you, sir. Uh, so more recently, he's become a little bit infamous in the Apple II community uh, because he's been hoarding uh, DB19 connectors. He's got this uh, product, he's into classic Macs, and he's got a flash storage option for Macs that he actually produces and sells. And of course, one of the difficulties with uh, these types of devices for old apples is sourcing the DB19 connectors for the drive port. Those are so difficult to find, in fact, that Nishida Radio uh, makes his own. And uh, a number of us in the community have been trying to source these things for various projects. And he has apparently done better than the rest of us, and he's been very quietly uh, buying them all up. Well, not so quietly, he's blogged about it. But uh, he's been uh, gathering up all the DB19 connectors in the world for his supply of uh, Macintosh emulators. So, you know, good uh, good on him, I guess. Uh, to me, the best person uh, win the connector supply. And uh, in any case, uh, there is some uh, good news for Apple II people. He has taken his Mac uh, emulator and managed to add Apple II support with a mere firmware update, which is pretty cool. So uh, I'm not sure if he's going to continue to develop this as sort of a proof of concept, I think, right now. But uh, if you have one of his uh, Mac floppy emu devices for your Mac or your Lisa, then you could probably try it out on your Apple II. Uh, and at the very least, uh, we can throw one more flash storage option on the big pile of flash storage options that we now have. I believe this is the first Emulation of the 800K drives. All everything that I've seen so far has been for the five and a quarter inch, 140K drives, and and so I think this this is uh, kind of something special for Apple II users. Yeah, and you know what? That's an excellent point. Yeah, uh, that's very true. If you wanted to emulate uh, the drive in your 2C Plus, for example, this is the only device that will do that. So it is it's very cool in that regard for sure. So moving right along, uh, this is a funny one. This Apple II user decided to uh, prank the cable company. His internet was out, and uh, they were sending a technician out, I guess, to, to diagnose the problem. Uh, or I guess they, oh, no, I'm sorry, they were installing new internet uh, in his office. And uh, it's a tweet, so there isn't a lot of information here. But uh, uh, he set up his Apple II uh, as though it was intended to be used on the internet, and uh, then watched in amusement as the Comcast tech came over and attempted to get it to work. So uh, there's a bit of a funny exchange here in the Twitter feed and a funny picture, which we'll link to in the show notes back from uh, April Fool's. Sort of taking that whole, I'll drag my Apple II into the genius bar and see if they can fix it thing to a whole new level. 
That's right. Yeah, you were briefly Facebook famous for that, in <laughs> fact, weren't you? Well, I didn't ask them to fix it. They just they wanted to see it, so I brought it in. <laughs> I was uh, there was a, a thread on the Apple II Facebook enthusiasts group recently uh, about that, and I thought it was funny that someone had heard that story about you, uh, but didn't know it was you. Well, I'm sure it's been done plenty of times before me. <laughs> no, I'm sure you're the only one ever. Oh, you're right. I'm completely unique and, and interesting. That's that's the tier one history that we're gonna roll with. Yeah, pretty much. Snowflake, Snowflake Mike McGinnis, pretty much. That's right. Delicate Mike. Snowflake, excuse me. Delicate Snowflake McGinnis. The 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 least the the <laughs> the, the least tough lumberjack <laughs> on the mountain. Well that's that's nicer than his previous moniker, Mike Hate Sponge McGinnis. I'm gonna merge those. I'm gonna start calling you Mike Hate Sponge Delicate Snowflake McGinnis. That works for me. Uh, moving right along, let's see. Let's talk about some games. We talked a couple of episodes ago about uh, Lee Alexander, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who does, uh, she did a, a Let's Play video uh, for Neuromancer, which is one of my favorite 2GS games, and she does a great job. Uh, she does, she has this very sort of soothing, uh, soothing voice, that sort of Bob Ross kind of thing she's got going on. And uh, I recently discovered, this isn't exactly news news, but it was news to me, that uh, she has a whole YouTube channel of these where she plays uh, a lot of generally retro games. Uh, she calls them lo-fi let's play. Uh, she has quite a, an interesting selection of Apple II games. So we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, it's kind of neat. She plays a bunch that I've uh, never heard of. And uh, for I guess a recap for anyone who isn't familiar, a let's play video is just sort of a video of someone playing a video game. Usually they're done with modern games, but there are a few people like this who do the retro ones. So Lee has quite a cool collection of Apple II stuff. Yeah, she told me that um, I, I had the uh, pleasure of meeting her at an event, and uh, she mentioned to me that she had w played some retro games and had used walkthroughs from uh, textfiles.com because that's basically the only place they were sitting anymore so she could get through some of the tough spots. And I was like, well, thank you. That's what they're for. And, All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, she's a nice, she's she's a good one. She's she's great to talk to. Yeah, I like her videos. All right, moving right along. Uh, this is not exactly Apple II related, but it uh, it came across uh, Skepchick.org, which is one of my favorite blogs. And it's always funny to see things that are sort of related to another part of your life in another part of your life. You know, it's like when you run into your school teacher at the grocery store. It's this sort of weird clash of worlds. Uh, so anyway, this. I forget what the context was, but this came across uh, Skeptic, and it's a collection of vintage retro computer commercials. And it's not exactly Apple II specific, but there is some Apple stuff in here. And what the heck, Retro Computing Roundtable uh, has been scooping us lately on Apple II, so I'm going to scoop them on general retro computing. There's, uh, there's some good commercials in here. There's one for the Univac, which I love. Uh, there's a bunch in here I've never heard of. Uh, there's, of course, William Shatner on the VIC-20. There's some ZX Spectrum stuff. Uh, there's, of course, John Cleese in the Compact commercials. There's uh, the Apple Super Bowl commercial. There's just really some really fun ones. Uh, lots of cheesy acting and lots of bad VHS uh, recordings. So we'll, uh, we'll link to this in the show notes for your retro viewing pleasure. Shatner, cheesy, what? Last year or maybe a year or two back, we had uh, David Finnegan on the show. He's the author of the new Apple II user's guide. Uh, he has released the, he, it's called Marina. It's the IP stack for the Apple II. And uh, what's great about this is that, uh, of course, we had Marinetti, uh, which was released back in the 90s with Jeff Weiss and Ewan Wanup and uh, a couple of, and uh, I know 
Andrew Rowan was involved, um, and I'm forgetting some names that I'll be taking a task for forgetting, but but that was for the 16-bit 2GS. This is actually for the 8-bit Apple II. Um, it was written entirely in assembly language, and it's got, uh, uh, David says that it contains numerous features such as lo uh, link local addressing, address conflict detection built in DHCP clients, uh, malicious IP packet rejection, and much more. So that's very, very awesome. This really is quite amazing. Uh, this is one of those things that I think a lot of people said probably wasn't possible. So it's really quite amazing to see it. Now, what kind of hardware is someone going to need for this? I think right now it's uh, you'll need the, the Ethernet, Ethernet card that Glenn makes over at uh, e2retrosystems.com. And of course, he's completely sold out of the, uh, the original run and the Ethernet 2. I don't know if it's hit some snags or maybe it was just... Uh, waiting for, for this particular piece of software, but it was announced, I guess, geez, more than a year ago, and it's just kind of been in limbo since then. I know a couple of units got out to beta testers, and we haven't heard much more about it. If that, if that comes out, that would be a, a great thing to go hand-in-hand hand with the software. Well, while people are waiting for their Ethernet 2, they can watch some very cool demos from the French Touch. They've been busy lately, haven't they? They have, but I don't really know much about these. I, I know that uh, one of them is called the Crazy Cycles demo, and it's a multi-desynchronized video modes demo. Quinn, being the, the technical lord around here, uh, what do you know about that? Yeah, well, uh, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the tech segment. Okay, but, right. uh, We can uh, just mention them briefly here. There are a couple of new demos that uh, show off some cool tricks with uh, Apple II video modes. And like we were talking about earlier, the Apple II is not really a well-suited uh, demo machine. It doesn't have much for audio-visual type of capabilities. We were too busy getting, you know, real work done with uh, <laughs> flop floppy drives that weren't terrible. Uh, but, you know, the kids and they like their toys. Um, but uh, occasionally a demo just does come out, and the French Touch is uh, probably doing some of the cooler stuff these days with uh, that. So we'll talk about that more in the uh, tech segment. Can't wait. Mm. But, uh, but we first... Can't go, yeah, we can't go another show without talking Reactive Micro, Mike, so go. Yeah, so last, uh, last month uh, we gave a little preview of the scalable oscillator uh, for the Transwarp GS, and we talked about the new no-slot clock, the low-profile no-slot clock that would fit nicely in your Apple IIc, whereas the old one wouldn't. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of details at the time, um, and, and our review that, that I did with Sean Fahey on the show wasn't too deep, but Sean has gone ahead and done full write-ups on both of those. They're available over at a2central.com, and if you're thinking about buying either one of these, definitely give them a read. It's, it's worth it. Very cool stuff. I just uh, can't say enough good things about those Reactive Micro guys. So uh, another interesting company, though, their Reactive Micro is not alone in producing cool stuff all of a sudden. Technobytes has kind of come out of nowhere and producing amazing stuff uh, out of Brazil, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. So last month or the month before they announced a CFFA card-based uh, mass storage solution for the Apple II, they, they did a run of 50 of those and it sold out immediately. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, they, they gave another hint because they, they seem to like giving hints before they tell you what they're going to be releasing, which is kind of cool. This time it was sort of the blurry picture of a back of a, an Apple II PCB, and we didn't know what it was. Well, it turns out that this is a 8-bit Apple II accelerator based on the original Transwarp, and there hasn't been a ton of demand, I guess, for, for, for accelerators for the, the original Apple IIs, the 8-bit line, just because they're... There were many models made by different companies at the time, and they're still fairly plentiful on eBay. Their prices are 
slowly starting to rise, I think, but you, you got the zip chips and the, the trans warp and, and the, and the rocket ship and a few other things, but this is based on the original applied engineering trans warp designs. So I don't know if you can order that yet, but uh, if you can't, I'm, if, if it's not available yet, I'm sure it will be soon. Yeah, we'll link to that video that's on not being hosted on A2 Central right now. It's pretty cool. Uh, they run through some demos of, of popular games, and there's a switch on top to control the speed, so you see it uh, speed up and slow down. It is neat, and it is, it's interesting how the uh, 8-bit uh, segment has definitely, I think, less demand for the accelerators. I think it wasn't as much of a thing at the time, so there isn't as maybe as much software to leverage it uh, compared to the, the 2GS where that clock speed was such a crippling kind of thing. It was such an obvious bottleneck and an accelerator really uh, sort of explodes the potential of the machine in a way that maybe isn't true with the 8-bit. And on the 8-bit side of the house, a lot of people bought their bought their Apple IIs to play games. And because the games are dependent on clock cycles to to manage screen movement and, and things going on in the background, if you get an accelerator in there, a lot of these games become unplayable because they just speed up to, to crazy speeds. And, and so in order to play games, you have to slow it back down. And if all you bought your Apple II for was to play games, then, then this is, this thing, these things were kind of pointless. So um, there, there is a big difference there. Well, we just can't seem to stop talking about solid-state storage. Uh, we practically did an entire episode about it last month. Yeah, but this is a lot different, though. It, this is this is an amazing thing. This just uh, my note on this item is head explode uh, because <laughs> that that's what happened when I saw this. So Nishida Radio has been uh, on hiatus for a while due to some health issues, but he is back with a bang uh, with a Wi-Fi version of his awesome Unis Disk solid-state storage solution. It's definitely my favorite of all the options out there. Yeah, so now this he has a new version uh, that supports Wi-Fi, and he's got a little web interface for it, so you can literally install this thing, for example, inside your 2C, never touch it again, and install disk images internally on this thing from your desktop computer. It's just, it's it's really just amazing. Uh, Nice. Yeah, Nishida Radio, once again, crushing it. This particular device is not quite available yet, uh, but what's interesting is that it's going to be backwards compatible. So there's a specific type of uh, Wi-Fi enabled SD card that you can buy. And with a firmware flash, original Unis disks will also be able to do this trick. So uh, we'll definitely be following that closely. We'll link to some instructions in the show notes. There's a specific type of uh, Wi-Fi SD card you have to buy. My understanding is that he is currently working on his backlog of orders that built up while he was on hiatus. So I think new devices may not be shipping for a while quite yet if you order, but uh, he is definitely back in business and we are very excited to have him back. There was a, uh, a card for the Apple II that was released, uh, I want to say 2010 or 2011, by a couple of guys in Taiwan. Uh, it was called the iDisk for Apple II, and it, it featured uh, Bluetooth transfer, file transfer for your Apple II. You could transfer images back and forth uh, onto a, a USB thumb drive that was plugged into this card in your Apple II from your, from your desktop through Bluetooth. And it was a really great function in an unfortunately kind of half-baked card. Uh, everything else about the card was not very great, and it didn't. It ended up they they, they said they promised all these updates and fixes, and 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 then uh, just stopped selling the card. So uh, it's it's really nice to kind of see. I hope anyway that that this is not Nishida Radio will not go back on hiatus before this gets finished or anything like that because it'd be really great to have that functionality back again in a. Um, environment, I guess, that's that's finished and, and supported and actually works well. 
my understanding is, if, I, if I'm understanding his link correctly on the site, if you buy this particular Wi-Fi SD card and uh, install this firmware patch that he has on his site now, uh, I believe you can do this with current Unis disks, but I haven't tried that yet myself. So moving right along, uh, I think uh, this next item has to be some sort of record for longest <laughs> uh, piece of software. Even longer than Duke Nukem 3D. I, I think it is even longer than Duke Nukem. Yeah, a record for Duke a piece Nukem of software forever. that was put on hold and then uh, came back and finished. Yes, Duke Nukem forever. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Wow, so this item has totally lost all of all of its thread. Uh, oh, the game, <laughs> the, the game, of course. This is Radio Gold. We're professionals here. <laughs> the game, of course, is Kaboom, which is perhaps better known as uh, Super Bomberman, which was very popular on various Nintendo platforms. And the uh, fine folks at Ninja Force, uh, Jesse Blue, who's recently been uh, making the rounds on Facebook posted that uh, he decided to dig this out and finish it. So you can now play Super Bomberman, a.k.a. Kaboom, on your 2GS. And by all accounts, it's really just an awesome, awesome port. Uh, all of the GS uh, diehards are squeeing in glee in the Facebook uh, threads. It's really quite quite something to see. And, and how much will this game cost me, Quinn? Uh, I believe it's uh, free, is it not? What? Free? That's impossible. I, I think that's the case. We will... We will link to NinjaForce.com. I'll just completely and, uh, ruin this item. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's back out of the room slowly on that item while we still can. And uh, talk about, uh, well, of course, the Apple Watch has been all in the news lately, and it's hard not to hear all sorts of things about it. Uh, this is an item that uh, has made the rounds on all the retro blogs and uh, podcasts, but we'll talk about it here since we are the Apple II podcast of record, everybody else. Take note, this is the Apple II watch. So somebody has decided to make a little device that is kind of like the iWatch or the Apple Watch would be if it was an Apple II device. So it's kind of a neat little thing. It's a, it's a little piece of brown plastic with a screen in it and it shows kind of a, it's got an, uh, an Arduino Teensy in it and it drives this little, a tiny little screen and it does this sort of fake Apple II boot up sequence. It's a, it's a cute thing. Uh, it's actually an instructable. So he shows you how to make one of your own if you're so inclined. Would you make yourself an Apple II watch, Mike? Not interested. <laughs> Not interested. Yeah, it's one of the... <laughs> Not interested. It's a, it's a neat party favor, but I don't know what you would do with it when you were done. So, Mike, uh, break down this next item for me. Ah, uh, I see what you did there. Ah, uh, yeah. <sighs> we're smooth. We're pros. Brought, we're excellent. Brought my A game tonight. Ewan <laughs> Wanup is, uh, of course, a prolific Apple IIGS uh, developer, and he has added a new tool to the fine toolbox of tools. See what I did there? <laughs> that you, uh, you programmers out there can can use. This is called Breakdown, BRK Down, and it's a disassembler for the Apple IIGS. Uh, I've never done any programming on the 2GS, so I was not aware that this did not exist. But um, Quinn, do you know anything about it? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a big deal. Uh, a disassembler for the 2GS is not that easy to do uh, because there's different. There's 8-bit mode and 16-bit mode, and there's a bunch of different uh, object file formats. And you know, it's it's fairly modern in a lot of respects in terms of uh, how it uh, manages object code. So it's yeah, fairly non-trivial. Uh, well, I'll say quite non-trivial to do this. And uh, this particular one is quite full-featured. It will 
generate code that can uh, actually be reassembled then, which in you know, a lot of disassemblers, they just kind of give you this, this lump of opcodes. It doesn't really uh, do much on its own after that, but this is actually will go all the way down, perhaps hence the name breakdown. <laughs> we'll, go, uh, we'll go all the way down to uh, source code, which then can be modified and reassembled if you're so inclined. So it's kind of a, a full stack disassembler if you like. Uh, so yeah, it's a great tool. I'm sure that uh, the two GS heads out there will love it. So we talk a lot about uh, auctions on the show. Um, specifically, we tend to focus on obviously Apple One and Apple Two related stuff. Sometimes Apple Threes if we're lucky. But as as the high end boutique collector market for vintage computers is growing and getting more and more expensive, uh, not just not just Apple Ones but uh, other machines as well. There's been kind of this this culture that's that sprung up around the auctions themselves and the New York times has a nice piece on what goes on behind the scenes and, and, and how the auction houses acquire these things and how they test them and, and, and what kind of people show up and what going to an auction is like. Uh, so that's, uh, it's on the New York times. Uh, it looks like it may be in their free section right now. I don't know how long it'll be before they move it behind the paywall, but uh, you can check that out. Well, Brutal Deluxe, uh, aside from being the fountain of 2GS awesome, they're doing something that nobody else is doing uh, with regard to Apple II cassettes. Why don't you tell us a bit about that, Mike? Yeah, so Antoine um, has been archiving Apple II cassettes for quite some time now, and I, I think he's up to several hundred of them. I, I don't know how many are left out there that he doesn't have, but he posted that a bunch more have been archived and are available and I think I think the way it works is they're either mp3s or wave files that you can download and either play back into your um, into your machine through the the cassette ports to reconstitute as as uh, disk images or software that you can run or you can feed those I think into your uh, your favorite emulator as well so Good job to you, Antoine, and thank you for taking the time to explore an, an area of archiving that, that hasn't necessarily been done by a whole lot of other Apple II enthusiasts out there. Yeah, I had no idea there were that many cassettes released for the Apple II. Jason, are you guys archiving cassettes, uh, data cassettes at uh, archive.org? Yeah, although his collection is far outstripping anything I'm finding. In fact, I suspect that a lot of what I'm grabbing are things that he either has his own copies of or the ones I have are his copies. And when I see that happens, I try to credit and move on to parts that aren't getting the love. Well, like I'm archiving a lot of user group diskettes and a lot of one-off, like somebody's personal collection. Uh, somebody just sent me images from like a thousand IBM PC floppies, for example. And, you know, there's some in there that have been around and some programs that I don't think there's ever been a version of them on. You know, I, I love the stuff he's doing, and he's being very open and generous with everything he's doing and has for years. He's one of my favorites for that purpose. I, I would stumble, like, for a long time, there was a period where I had all of these Apple II crack screens up, and I very methodically transcribed which pirates were mentioned on them because I wanted those pirates to find it when they Googled themselves <laughs> and then they would contact nice. me and, and, and it worked. It actually, there's a number of people like Krakovich and Crackman and so on who, who would, you know, and the then freeze, you turn them into would, authorities. And then, yeah, I would, I, well, I would talk to them about <laughs> that life and some of them didn't want to talk. One of them, one of them used this, all these methods to not be able to let me know where he was because he had been, I don't know, I think he was like in his like 30s or something when he was cracking in the early 80s. So by now he was 60 and he was a CEO of a company. 
<laughs> and he didn't want to cause any trouble for that company. And so we, we talked through a very interesting methodology and so on. And um, I had done that. And then one day I found some of those screenshots along with what looked like an enormous amount of information and contextual knowledge around them in French. And that's how I first found that site. And I was like, oh my goodness, somebody's been doing their homework. <laughs> and, and, and it's just been like that ever since then. It's been like, oh my goodness, what an what That's the stuff that I live for in terms of analysis and everything else. It's not just, here's a pile of disk images. It's, oh, somebody went through and figured out Here's how this Apple user group got founded. Here's how they lived. Here's why this program type is so prominent because there was a member in it who was like this. I love that stuff. And uh, anyway, yeah, no huge Brutal Deluxe fan here. Excellent. All right. Well, keep it up, Antoine. So, uh, Mike, we know that uh, Waz is moving to Australia at some point in the future. While he's there, what, uh, what sort of event do you suppose he might attend? <laughs> Why, well, he might go to Oz K-Fest. Really? Yeah, that happened, I guess, a week or so ago. We had Andrew Rowan on to talk about that a show or two back. And he talked about all the exciting things that were going to happen, and they did happen. And if you followed their OzKFest account on Twitter, you got links to all kinds of great pictures and videos of the sessions. And I've been kind of going through a few of those. Michael Mulhern of, the, of that the dastardly uh, retro computing roundtable group over there, uh, he had a nice presentation so it looked like a, a great time and definitely something that I would check out if I could go to Australia. The pictures are fun. One of the sessions was the solid state of the union, and uh, someone brought basically an instance of every single flash storage device available for Apple IIs, and there's a giant pile of them. It's uh, quite a funny picture. All right. Well, I guess we can uh, wrap this section up with a, a bit of woos which I know just drives you insane, but... All right, well, we made the bumper, so you might as well play it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Here you go. We like Woz, and we know you do too. It's Woz News. It's Woos. This isn't really Apple II related specifically, but, um, you know, we like to keep an eye on Woz anyway, because he was sort of the fun half of the Apple II co-founder, uh, co or the Apple co-founders. And he is sponsoring a comic convention with Stan Lee. This is the Silicon Valley Comic Con. So I guess if you're up in that area and you have nothing to do, you can go and check it out. I don't know if Waz, I'm sure Stan will be there, but I don't know if Waz will or not. So I'm a bit surprised there isn't already a Bay Area Comic Con of some sort. I don't know, I'm not a Comic Con type of person, so I've just never looked around. All right, well, uh, I think we have a bit of uh, eBay, don't we, in this show where we don't talk about eBay? Yeah, we do have one eBay. <laughs> Don't talk about eBay. Don't right. talk about eBay. We exactly. do. Uh, we do have one eBay item, and but first we should play the music. So here, here we go. Insert bumper. <laughs> Once again, very professional. Look, rare. Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay. All right, so uh, this is an early, uh, an early production. He's calling it an early production Apple II computer from 1977. It is a Revision Zero. It does have a low case and board serial number that look like they match. The serial number was 2234, so it's in the first half of the Rev Zeros, which means it has the, uh, the light green sockets for, for the slots and a few other features that changed with the second half of the run. And that item sold for... 
that item sold for $7,800, which is um, not the highest that I've seen Revision Zeros go for, but uh, is a nice price anyway. Now, this one's a, uh, kind of interesting because it's it's being sold by Bob Luther, uh, a name you may recognize. He He's the guy who a year or two back, he I guess he bought an Apple One as part of a, a storage unit or going out of business lot, something like that for like 75 bucks and, and sold it for quite a bit of money. And he talks a little bit about the specifics of this machine. It doesn't doesn't look like it has a whole lot of interesting history as in like it didn't belong to anyone famous that we know of or anything like that. And I think he also actually just auctioned an Apple One as well. And that's probably on eBay and you can find those details. I don't care about the Apple One, so. <laughs> yeah, now that the for our round <laughs> Apple Ones has died down a bit, I wonder if Rev Zero Apple Twos will be the new thing. Oh, people will find ways to like overbid on everything. That's just how it works. <laughs> people have this, you know, it's funny to watch just the bitterness that kind of pervades when people are like, oh, look at this thing. Oh, what are they doing? And they don't realize that like all auctions are hype. Like all of them are. Mm -hmm. And and it's not, it's not, auctions aren't sales. Sales are where things <laughs> sit somewhere and people look at it and go, I would like to buy that. Auctions are spectacle and are designed to trumpet and ballyhoo and demand that you pay attention to buy this quote-unquote one-of-a-kind rare item. And then people get angry. They're like, oh, it's like $7,500. I'm like, if you are going to an auction to acquire stuff like this, then you've already failed. You should have already <laughs> you should have already been part of a community in which something like that might become available or otherwise be involved. It's just it's just silly. And 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 when someone buys it, I'm like, okay, well then you're you're not really paying for the the item. You're paying for some idea of the item that you hope and pray. And if you're doing it as an investment, you're just an idiot. But okay. <laughs> All right, you heard it here first, folks. If you're going to an auction, you've already failed. There you go. Yeah, the Apple II does look like it's in, in nice shape. He does say it's working. Uh, so whoever won, congratulations. And if you're out there and you are listening, we'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm, definitely. How's uh, how's your Red Zero Apple II doing, Mike? Still not working. I, mm. But I was talking to somebody on Facebook who I guess does a lot of does a lot of fixing of these machines. And uh, so maybe he will uh, give me a hand and tell us about it later on. Well, with the eBay segment out of the show, uh, out of the way on this show where we don't talk about eBay, let's move on to my favorite segment, Weird Gaming. You know Choplifter, you know Loadrunner, but do you know this? It's time for a weird game. Well, my choice was based on the Choose Your Own Adventure book, The Cave of Time, and the game is called The Cave of Time. It works the same as the book, but there's a few little puzzles and things like that. And, and it's just not some, it's not a title that I hear about a lot, regardless of how popular the, that line of books was. And of course, The Cave of Time was the very first of the, of that line that went on for several hundred titles. So uh, it is interesting to, to, to see, to play that game in an Apple II format. And it's fun because uh, the, the original author, I forget what his name is, it's not in front of me now, does point out that uh, his book publishing company that was doing the line actually uh, created their software label, I guess, specifically to do these games, and then, of course, did a bunch of other uh, titles as well. You continue to surprise me on this segment, I have to say, Mike. I was a big fan of Choose Your Own Adventure books when I was little. I used to, I had a stack of them, and I, was, I had one everywhere I went with my parents, and I had no idea there were Choose Your Own Adventure games on the Apple II. 
All right, so that's a tough act to follow, but my weird gaming choice is a game called Short Circuit. And this is sort of in keeping with my theme of games that aren't necessarily weird in the sense that people haven't heard of them, because some of these are pretty popular, but weird in the sense of they were unusual for the time or uh, unusual in a particular way like this game, which is, I think, uh, was way ahead of its time. And that's what I really love about it. So this is a very fun little game. And it's based on the 80s movie of the same name, and you, you control an electron, and you're moving through these circuits, and you're trying to achieve various goals. It's very creative. It's a ton of fun. I, I definitely recommend people play it. Uh, it was one of my favorites. It's got a lot of variety. Each level has different little things that you do, uh, increasing complexity with your little electron. And it's got, like I say, a lot of things that were really ahead of its time. It's, you know, based on a movie license, which wasn't that common. I guess the Atari 2600 did a lot of that, but computer games weren't doing as much of that at the time. And the level-based format is definitely uh, distinctively modern. It's got a series of, it's got a grid that shows all of the levels that exist, but it doesn't show you what the next level is. So there's this sort of uh, excitement about not knowing what's next, and the levels are revealed as you pass the current level. That's something that all, basically all modern level-based games do, but uh, the time, again, pretty unusual. The idea of controlling an electron is really interesting as your main character so it's got a lot of weird little things that you might see in uh, like a mobile game today maybe but definitely not something that you saw in uh, computer games of the time i love it i definitely recommend everyone play it and that is my pick for uh, weird gaming so on that note uh, let's roll into our tech segment Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. All right, so one tech item this month. Uh, we talked earlier in the show about those awesome new French French Touch demos that have been coming out. The two that I'm thinking of are called Scroll, Scroll, Scroll and Crazy Cycles. Now, I'm sure most people have seen these by now. We'll, of course, link to them in the show notes just in case. The scroll, scroll, scroll demo is a series of horizontal scrolling uh, lines of text. And what's awesome about it is that uh, there's a line of ASCII text mode text, and there's a line of low-res graphics uh, forming scrolling text, and there's a line of high-res graphics, and they're all scrolling at the same time on the same screen. And then sort of related to that is a more recent demo called Crazy Cycles. And this thing is rendering multiple graphic screens at the same time with kind of transition zones between them so like zigzag lines and so on and again with you know different video modes mixed on the same screen with jagged and mixed transitions between them it's really quite amazing to see uh, so i thought i'd talk a little bit about how those types of demos work and uh, not to trivialize the uh, the effort that's gone into that these are amazing demos and this type of thing is very difficult to write but the technique that's being used is is called cycle counting uh, the way it works is now the apple II, the earlier apple II models do not have a vertical blank interrupt which is very common on on later computers but uh, there's well the later models of the 2c did have it once they decided to commit to mouse support apple did add a vertical blank uh, interrupt for the mouse but most apple II models do not have a vertical blank interrupt which is normally what you would use to synchronize something like this because the gist of how these work is changing the video mode on an apple II is actually instantaneous you know you touch a soft switch and it switches instantly 
So if you know exactly where on the screen the electron beam is, you can actually switch the video mode and start rendering different video mode content uh, on the same screen, and then you can flip it back or flip to a new mode or whatever. The key is knowing exactly where that electron gun is. Now on most computers you would do this with the vertical blank because the vertical blank uh, with the vertical blank interrupt rather because that interrupt is a real time a hard real time uh, reliable indicator of exactly when that electron gun is at the bottom of the screen and on its way back up. By knowing that you know you know exactly where it is and it's relatively easy to synchronize your video mode switches then with which part of the screen is being painted. What's so awesome about these demos of course is that the Apple II doesn't have that so. The way you have to do it is by literally counting how many cycles you're uh, spending in your code. Now, let me uh, back up a little bit here. So while there isn't a vertical blank interrupt, there is a flag that is set in uh, a register in the Apple II that tells you when the vertical blank is starting. So not nearly as convenient as, uh, as an interrupt, but if you pull that flag, you can detect uh, with some accuracy when the vertical blank is beginning. And from that point, what you have to do is count how long each instruction in your code is taking. And, you know, we know since the, the screen is being scanned at a certain uh, rate and we know how fast the CPU is, you know, we know it's a certain number of megahertz. Uh, we know how, how many milliseconds are spent on each scan line of the screen. So, you know, you can actually calculate exactly where the electron beam will be at any given point once you detect that flag for the vertical blank has switched. You basically just wait a certain amount of time and you know how much time that is has passed based on how many uh, of your opcodes have executed. And of course you have to know how long each opcode takes to execute, which can be found in the manuals for the machine. Essentially you count the cycles, you wait a certain amount of time and you flip it and you flip it back. And if you do this very elaborately and very carefully, you can actually generate these kinds of patterns on the screen with switching video modes. It's really a, an awesome trick. Again, I'm glossing over all the details here and the devil is in the details on this type of thing. You know, for example, if you have any branches in your code, all of your branches have to be the same length or else the video won't stay synchronized. And that's actually really quite difficult. Uh, in fact, I had to solve the same problem uh, with the uh, VGA video generator for my Veronica project because that VGA video signal was being generated in uh, real time in software as well. So all of the different branches in the code all had to be the same length in order to keep the horizontal sync pulses uh, synchronized or else the monitor would lose sync and you just you'd get flickering and black screens and so on. So similar problem with this type of demo, you know, all of your code paths have to be the correct length in order for things to stay stable and synchronized and you know a thousand other tiny details uh, that I'm glossing over uh, that make this such a, a really amazing demo. So I hope that provides a little bit of insight. Oh, and uh, I'll also link to uh, the disk images for those demos so you can try it out on real hardware. I suspect this is one of those things where they're just, they're not going to run in an emulator. That would be, be my guess. This kind of uh, precision timing uh, stunt is probably uh, going to defeat most emulators, but I'm sure that the emulator writers out there will write in to tell me how wrong I am on that front. <laughs> they so, always and, do. It's, well, we love the feedback in any form. In fact, you can write us feedback at open-apple.net. We don't say that enough. So uh, in any case, we'll link to all of the above so that people can give it a try and uh, have some fun with your 8-bit Apple II for once. All right, Mike, uh, what have you got for us for tech? I have an article that was actually linked to uh, by the Moz6502 account over on Google+. Plus. There's a, it's actually a pretty active account, and they've got a lot of good information there. But this is a, it's a quick write-up that talks about capacitors and, and care and feeding and replacement of capacitors and how those tend to be the things that fail the most and the damage that they can do. 
There's a nice link to an article over at minuszerodegrees.net. Uh, you can see some examples of blown capacitors and, and, and how to fix them and what to do. It's, it's very uh, informative. In fact, they have a bunch of links here as, as references to the, to the short little write-up on Google+. And they're all very good reading. We've talked about caps plenty before on the show, especially, and we, I, I do over on the Apple 3 show as well. Because when I buy, if I buy an Apple III, the first thing I do is go in and recap that that power supply, just just because I know that they're either blown or they're going to blow soon. And you, Quinn, have, have actually talked uh, quite a bit about the the great, um, what did you call it, the capacitor famine or something like that, where where a bunch of counterfeits were made and they're still out there. That's right. Yeah, the great capacitor plague. That's uh, we, it. Yeah, yeah, we did a whole segment on that a couple of uh, months ago. So if you're dealing at all with these old machines, uh, I think this is this is worth a worth a read. Definitely. You can never talk too much about capacitors when you're into retrocomputing. They, uh, they are a very important topic, so make sure to take good care and feed and water your capacitors. All right. Well, uh, that's all I had for, for tech. Uh, so I, I think we have quite a bit of feedback, though. I, I know the last episode was uh, pretty popular and people had some stuff to say about it. Um, here's some music for our feedback section. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. We do, in fact, have quite a bit of feedback. We're a little bit behind, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, Thank you all very much for writing. We really appreciate it, and we definitely read every single email, even if we don't always get the time to reply. Uh, Let's see. So going back a couple of episodes, uh, first email I have here is from Happy Puppet, which is a fun username. As always, feel free to include your first name in there if you like. Uh, Happy Puppet says, another great podcast. Thanks to you both and anyone else involved. Uh, when I first noticed it was three hours long, I put it off for a couple of days in favor of a few <laughs> short podcasts that fit yeah. my ADD-ness. But once I started listening, it went by like that. Mark was a great guest. This is referring to Mark Kriegsman. And uh, yes, we agree. He was an awesome guest. Yep. Uh, the creator of Fast LED most recently. Uh, Mark was a great guest. You should have more Apple II game programmers on the show. We agree. Uh, Some of the game programmers are a little harder to track down. Uh, Most of them (laughs) uh, went on to other grand uh, adventures in the video game industry. And uh, so they're, yeah, they can be a little harder to wrangle an interview with, but we're always trying to find more. Bill Budge. Yeah, (laughs) we're coming for you, Bill. But uh, it's funny that he mentions the length because we actually had a bit of a thread on that on the Facebook, uh, the Apple II enthusiasts group on Facebook. People were some in favor of more length and some opposed to more length. Uh, I'm always a a bit confused as to how anyone could be opposed to more length because there's that button on your uh, podcast player with the two vertical bars on it that (laughs) turns out if you push that at any moment, the podcast will actually kind of halt. And then if you push it again, it'll kind of resume right where it left off. It's really, it's cool stuff. I think it's a new feature. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, feel free to use that and you can break up the podcast uh, into as much as uh, you like lengthwise. All right. Now that I've uh, alienated all of our listeners, uh, let's let's move on to the next Just email. write the hate mail to me. We got lots of uh, fun links from people. Uh, thanks for sending those in. Uh, our good friend AM continues to send in links. Uh, we got some fun ones from uh, Olivier, who some of you may have met at uh, Kansas Fest last year. Came all the way over from France. So thank you, Olivier. Got some links from Mark. Oh, we got an email from listener Neville. He says, hi, Mike and Quinn. I was just listening to episode 45 while vacuuming. I also listened to podcasts while vacuuming. And you got an email asking about how to transfer shrink it disk images to a GS. That's right. That was quite a topic. 
So he says, my GS is currently in boxes, but I seem to recall that there was an FST such that the three and a half inch drives could read 720K PC formatted floppies. And in fact, he's right about that. I do remember such thing. Uh, if the shrink it file is larger than that, uh, 800K, then you could UU encode it, split the file in half, transfer those over on floppies and paste them together with then use bin hex and UU decode on them. That's uh, that's quite a process. <laughs> that's a contortion right there. <laughs> yeah, I suspect uh, there might be easier ways to do it. I think last time I managed to track down uh, Mac and PC-based decompressors that will work on trinket files. So hopefully someone got that to work. I imagine now with the, the Unis disk uh, going, going Wi-Fi, it may even become easier. Yeah, that's probably the easiest way to, to go about this, honestly. Uh, some combination of emulators and solid state and so on should be able to deal with a shrinked file. Uh, he says, uh, regarding eBay, you might be interested in an app that I wrote to help with eBay searches. Oh. Uh, this is actually quite cool. You can specify a whole bunch of searches like Apple III or Apple 111, etc., and it will put, he's obviously pandering to Mike there with the Apple <laughs> 3 example. It will perform the searches and combine the results, hey. uh, removing duplicates. Uh, you can then do further filtering to get rid of junk. And if you run the searches the next day, it won't show you stuff you've already seen. Uh, so it's called Auction Civ, and uh, it actually sounds like a great tool. So we're always happy to promote the efforts of Apple II community enthusiasts. Uh, so we'll definitely uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks for the mention, Neville. Yeah. I wonder, hopefully he's going to add a feature if this isn't already there to take your auction results and uh, drop them three inches because uh, occasionally they may stop working. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's coming now or if that feature already exists. Thank you, Neville. <laughs> Moving on, uh, listener Jesse. Being the revised version that'll come out a year and a half after it's originally released. And that's right, yeah, and, and it'll be great, and nobody will use it. <laughs> 20 years later, nobody will have heard of it. <laughs> all right. Uh, Just kick me while I'm down. All right, now I've alienated all of our listeners and my co-hosts. <laughs> okay, I'm on a roll here, folks. See if I can do more damage. Uh, let's see. Jesse Blue of Ninja Force fame uh, writes in, says, Hello, Quinn and Mike. Thank you very much for an excellent show. Uh, I was running in to let us know about Kaboom, which we talked about. So thanks very much for that, Jesse. Kaboom is very, very cool. And everybody should go download it right now. Oh, and uh, Rob from the Player Missile Podcast has written in again. Let's see. He meant to send this in last time that we mentioned him. Oh, he's writing about uh, Joe. We, we talked about Joe Eli, who did the Before 84 uh, music bit with the Apple II. Yeah, so turns out we've been pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, of course it's we actually have. <laughs> e- yeah, yes, it's actually E. Lee. Bruce Lee with an E in front of it. So Joe E. Lee. Uh, moving right along, uh, listener Garrett writes in and says, I just wanted to send some feedback along that I've been enjoying the podcast. Thank you, Garrett. I'm a fairly late starter as I only recently purchased an Apple IIe and spruced it up. I got a fair bit of Apple II Plus exposure in late high school and have always admired their openness, as have we. Uh, like many of your listeners, I suspect I'm a bit older with a background in software, and like many of the hosts, in fact. Uh, getting much more into hardware as a hobby and your Veronica project, Quinn. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's apparently been an inspiration. Well, it's certainly awesome. an inspiration on how not to design and build a computer. 
<laughs> oh, I did so many poorly done things in there. Uh, but people like it anyway, so thank you all for that. Uh, I'm enjoying the techiness of the show with plenty of references to programming and hardware hacking. Well, good. I hope that we uh, bring a little bit of that to the show these days. Uh, let's see. Next, we have listener Peter, uh, who sends us, ah, yes, the Apple II Watch, which, of course, we talked about. And uh, Waz himself has apparently given it a thumbs up. So thanks for that link, Peter. All right. Uh, last one I have here is from listener Henry, who says, Hi, guys. I've been listening to your podcast for several months now, and you've kept me great company on several long drives. That's good, because we do go on. Emphasis on the long. Mm. Quinn and Mike even inspired me to haul out of the closet my old 2C+. Mm, nice choice. And repair the grimy internal drive and image writer, too. Oh, so you can wake up the neighbors. <laughs> Get away. And also get out all my old Shugart and Alps-based disk drives, uh, seven at last count. Hmm, wow. wow. And my old Teen Years 2 Plus, which is actually a caseless home-built bare PCB with hand-soldered components, Unitron 2 Plus clone. Now, that's really interesting. Have you ever heard of the Unitron 2 Plus clone, Mike? No, I haven't. That's uh, new to me. There used to be a really good uh, website um, on on just Apple II clones. Uh, it was informative and, and had a lot of uh, great entries, and I think it disappeared a while ago, which is unfortunate. It may still be lurking around on the archive, and if it is, we'll post a link to that. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of weird little one-off clones in countries that Apple couldn't sue in that, that uh, are out there. We're probably in pretty short runs. I don't know if this was one of them or if this was one of the uh, larger runs, but yeah, that is interesting. I've definitely never heard of the Unitron 2 Plus. Hmm. Yeah, I do remember that site you're talking about, about the clones. And yeah, I haven't seen it in a while either. It may be, may be gone. We'll have to see if we can find it. Uh, that's how Mike gets back at me, folks, for using bad words that cause him to make edits in the podcast. He <laughs> then goes and throws in mentions of links that may or may not have existed some years ago and says, <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes. So then I have to go find it. Uh, we have an adversarial relationship behind the mic, folks. You have no idea. And in fact, because I do all the editing, I, I have I have files of, of Quinn saying things that you would never imagine that she would have said that can't be published here, of course, because it's a family, family show. But uh, rest assured, they're very funny. Yes, Mike has a blackmail fund for years. It's his, it's his retirement plan, actually. He just has, has a Quinn file. Uh, Moving right along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I used to run a GBBS-based BBS uh, on that hardware uh, and disk drive collection back in the 80s. So, yeah, we talked about GBBS recently. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that must have been quite a sight, a Unitron 2 Plus homemade PCB clone uh, with seven disk drives hanging off of it running a BBS. I, I love that image. So absolutely. Henry, if you have any pictures of that, oh, my goodness, we would love to see those. It's always great, especially for, for some reason, the, the BBS uh, sysops, the, the pictures of their old machines are always so wonderful because you can see where they're, you know, they're, they're trying to maintain uptime so they don't, they don't take time necessarily to clean stuff up after they add a new drive or, or, or um, new capability or another, you know, bank of modems. And so a lot of times it's these big Frankenstein machines that are stretched across entire desks and tables and, and uh, so it's yeah it's, it's fun to to see that I am reading uh, just to go back a little bit here for a second I'm reading uh, an info world from April 11th 1988 that uh, Unitron uh, tried to clone the Mac and, and I guess Apple really came after them for that uh, but it says that they are a Brazilian firm so a little bit of history uh. there yeah, the other thing, of course, about BBSs is that storage was king. You know, everybody wanted to have lots of room for message boards and door games and lots of room for downloading uh, 
totally legit shareware oh, yeah, software. Sure, yeah, to- totally legit. And so they would often push the limits of the hardware as far as how many disk drives uh, they could support. Yeah, that must have been pretty neat to see that going back in the day. So absolutely, if anyone out there has pictures of their uh, BBS setups, uh, we'd love to see that. Uh, but Henry goes on to say, my 11-year-old son is now learning AppleSoft Basic as a result of digging out this Unitron neat. 2 Plus. So that is fantastic. Love to hear that. I uh, love to hear kids Actually, learning Basic. Actually, you should teach him assembly language first because if you go from Basic to assembly, it's much harder than if you go the other way around. Mm, that's yeah i would say that's true uh oh well and then he goes on to say and i've given myself a goal of writing my first assembly language program within three months Excellent. So, uh, then you can then you can go on to teach your son because you know the teacher only has to be a couple days ahead of the student that's, <laughs> that's right i don't have to outrun great... the bear i just have to outrun you <laughs> exactly that's the the great untold secret of substitute teachers <laughs> All right. Uh, and you you sometimes mention the retro computing scenery and props in television programs, uh, specifically the Goldbergs and, of course, uh, Halt and Catch Fire, which we've talked about a lot on the show here. Uh, he mentions uh, The IT Crowd, which is a British TV show that I think many of us are probably familiar with. I'm certainly a big fan. Uh, it's available on Netflix as well. And uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with it, the IT crowd is uh, a sitcom about the IT department in a large company. And uh, just it's really, really well done. Uh, The writing is really sharp. Characters are great. But what he mentions here is uh, that there's actually quite a lot of cool retro hardware in the background in that Mm -hmm. show, which now that uh, he mentions it, I don't think I ever actually paid attention to that. So he... Yeah, he mentions uh, there's uh, he spotted a Commodore PET, a Mac SE, an Altair 8800, and some 80s toys like a, a Merlin. We all remember those. So, uh, yeah, if anyone spotted any Apple II hardware, uh, definitely write in and let us know. You watched the show, Mike? I did, yes. Um, and, of course, uh, his mention of, of these uh, little Easter eggs, I guess, if you want to call them that, in the background. I do remember seeing the PET and the Mac and, and maybe a couple of other things. Uh, but it's certainly a good excuse to go back and rewatch the series. Uh, it's technically it, it's four seasons, but each season is only six episodes, so it's basically like one the length of one standard American television series uh, or season. And they're half-hour shows, and actually I think they're 20 minutes without the commercials. And they hit all the marks for for the retro fans out there, and and the comedy is uh, funny. I, I think the one of the funniest things that I remember was this. Series, I think, came out like 2006 or so, something like that, right around the time when the MPAA was freaking out because people had figured out how to torrent their movies. The the MPAA released a bunch of like ads about all the horrible things that would happen to you if you got caught downloading movies and blah, blah, blah. And so, of course, the IT crowd parodied this with um, their own. And it starts out, you know, you wouldn't download a movie, you wouldn't, or you wouldn't um, steal a car, you wouldn't you know, steal a book, and then it takes it to the extreme. You wouldn't shoot a policeman. You wouldn't, (laughs) all of these (laughs) horrible, horrible things. And it ends up with you being shot in the back of the head by the FBI for pirating movies. So, (laughs) and that's the kind of extremist, absurd humor that's, the show is just rife with it. It's, It's great. The writing is really, really sharp. This show, it's its so funny, in fact, for techie people that the company I was working at at the time uh, actually set aside uh, time uh, once a week to get everyone together and watch the show together. We actually had like a, oh, an IT crowd awesome. viewing party. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we were just rolling in the aisles. Anyone who's ever had to troubleshoot a computer for your grandparents or anything like that, it's just they, they, they nail it. Really, really well done. 
Uh, all right, so moving along here, Henry then goes on to say uh, he's got a submission for the uh, Weird Gaming segment. Excellent. Oh. Always appreciate those. One of his personal favorites. And the mere mention of this game has endeared Henry to me forever <laughs> uh, because he mentions Auto Duel by Lord Bush uh, yes. and Chuckles. And that is, uh, without a doubt, on my top five list of favorite games of all time. So thank Great you very game. much for the mention of that. Yeah, Definitely need just, to play it with a joystick. Yes, it's a definitely a joystick game. We've talked about it a little bit. We talked, we did a joystick segment way back in the day, maybe four or five months ago, and uh, we talked about uh, there's a particular Gravis joystick that's really well suited to Auto Duel. Um, it may not get covered in the weird game segment. I don't think it's sufficiently weird in any uh, not- noticeable way, but it is a fantastic game. So, thanks for mention of that, Henry. I guess we'll have a new segment for game, just game reviews or something <laughs> to make the show even longer. That's right. Well, so a lot of people have said they want a six-hour show, so <laughs> careful what you wish for, folks. You're going to get to hear us ramble on about Load Runner and Choplifter after all. <laughs> uh, well, that is the last email that I have. Have you got any feedback to share, Mike? I do have one from Brian Weiser. He wrote in to, to say this is a, was about our Beagle Brothers episode. Uh, he said, I too loved your Beagle Brothers episode of Open Apple. They are, as they are one of my all time favorite companies. Great people, products, and inspiration. You mentioned wanting to find some Beagle gra- graphics. We were a bit surprised that you didn't remember our site. Look no further than the official Beagle Brothers site that Bill Martins and I have crafted over many years, encompassing software, manuals, graphics, and history. And, and he is absolutely correct that you know, that is a wonderful archive site, not just the Beagle Brothers, but they've got a lot of great stuff archived over there. So check that out as soon as possible. And in the meantime, to Brian and Bill, I apologize that I didn't remember to, to mention that. Definitely. Yeah, I'm familiar with that site as well. So it was an oversight on both our parts. So thanks for, you know, writing in to, to mention stuff like that. You know, uh, Mike and I, uh, we cram through an, uh, a, lot, a lot of material on every show. So there's always going to be things like that that we miss. So we always appreciate the chance to go back and correct our mistakes, especially uh, Mike's mistakes. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the feedback that I have. Uh, all right. Well, I think that about uh, does it for this month, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, finally. I didn't didn't think this was ever going to end. I'm sure most of our listeners (laughs) didn't either. Uh, Thank you very much to Jason for for joining us. Uh, Jason has gone off on his merry way already, but uh, I know that um, he he seemed to have a good time hanging out with us for a little while. I know we had a good time talking to him. Sure did. uh, Quinn, thank you for podcasting with me. I think it was another good show. Yeah, my pleasure as always. All right, everybody. We'll see you next month. Bye, everyone. You wouldn't steal a handbag. You wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't steal a baby. You wouldn't shoot a policeman and then steal his helmet. You wouldn't go to the toilet in his helmet and then send it to the policeman's grieving widow and then steal it again. Downloading films is stealing. If you do it, you will face the consequences. Man, these anti-piracy ads are getting really mean. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net.
<laughs> um, that was a very nerdy laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs>